Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm just jazzed to be here. Listen, well, guess what? Make that a double jazzed. Hey! <laughs> uh, listen, we gotta call this out right off the bat. This is a happy Pride Month. Yes! Happy Pride Month. To all of our LGBTQ plus listeners, um, from uh, two of your biggest supporters, allies, and all-around fans. Yes. Um, we wanted to just quickly address, uh, you know, last year we were uh, still new, obviously. We were only, yeah. you know, what, six, eight months into the podcast. Babies. And so we did a full month of Pride-related episodes on the show. We also posted daily unsolved LGBTQ plus murders on our social media. And uh, we don't know if you were listening to us then or not, but we just wanted to fill you in um, on some changes that we've made this year because last year some members of the LGBTQ plus community did communicate to us that they didn't feel we should have engaged in that kind of coverage as we are obviously cisgendered uh, straight women. Um, so this year we are not going to be doing that kind of coverage on the show. However, we will be once again selling our uh, Pride Month True Crime and Cocktails t-shirts. 50% of the profits from those go to the Trevor Project. The Trevor Project is an amazing organization. Uh, it's the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ plus young people. Um, but we're not going to be covering... Uh, Pride-related episodes on the show. Instead, we thought it would be better for us to recommend some LGBTQ plus podcasts that are both in and out of the true crime space. So stay tuned 
to our socials where we're going to be posting about those all through the month. And uh, you can also share your favorite LGBTQ plus podcast there um, and, and have a beautiful conversation and share the love and all of the above. And more than anything, we just want to wish everyone a happy pride. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and if you'd like to get one of the pride shirts, they're only available for the month of June. TrueCrewMerch.com. We raised a pretty good amount of money for the Trevor Project last year. Uh, and we'd like to do, I, I, I'm going to find out, I got to find out what that number was because I want to try and beat it. Um, let's of try course. and beat our record. Uh, and they are an amazing organization. I was lucky enough to attend one of uh, their events here in LA a few years ago and it was very moving, just vital life-saving work. Um, so a great place to put some funds. So put some funds this month. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, listen, before we get into it, um, what you drinking over there? Oh, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm just doing a, a basic water, basic Christy, it's life-saving. Um, <laughs> it does keep us alive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm also doing a nice cherry Kool-Aid. Hey now. Hey now. Isn't that uh, what the Kool-Aid man says? Uh, oh yeah. That's it. Is it? That's it. I had to envision him going through a wall to remember it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would have done probably, uh, the usual Slurpee, but I had one earlier today and I was mm. like, the size I drink, I can't do two in a day. I can't do that. So I'm like, you know what? Instead, I'll basically do a Slurpee mix without the ice and just do a Kool-Aid. Yeah. Like a toddler, but. No, I love that. I'm living for it. Now, listen, I got a, I got the triple crown going over here. I got a tumbler of of water in my Bitch 2 Vegas cup. Of course. I got a half-drank Diet Coke in the can. And I've got something new. <gasps> oh! I found these in the store the other day. And again, we're not sponsored. So you're going to get my real reaction in real time because they don't pay us. Um, nice. Archer Ruse. Uh, it's, it's a canned sparkling wine. This is made in hey. Italy. 10.5% alcohol. Hey but the yo. reason why I really responded to it was on the can, there's a picture of somebody riding a moose. And that made oh, me think nice. of, of my homeland. Um, of course. Okay. I can't get into that. Um, but anyway, so I thought I'd give it a go. Yeah. And what I like is you see someone riding a moose and think Canada. I see riding a moose and I think Jared Padalecki. Of course. And it, I, I'm so sorry. I should also be noted it is specifically uh, a woman riding a moose. I just read the the little bit here. So pardon me. Um, it also says, this reminds us that adventures, like wine, should be a little whimsical. Oh, that's nice. Okay, Archer Ruse. Let's take, let's take a <laughs> ruse. All right, here we go. Oh. Oh. It's sweeter than uh, I'm used to. I'm used to a little sure. bit of a, a drier sparkling. But not bad, not not overly sweet. It's just sweeter than than the than prosecco I normally to. drink. Yeah, sure. It's nice, and I will say this: each sip each sip gets a little bit better. You know hey. what I mean? Very drinkable. So there we go. Let's see how many nice. I drink tonight. Let's see <laughs> where the show starts and where the show ends. Oh yeah, you never know with us which way we're gonna go. Um, but I do need to say, and I yeah. learned this. Literally, as we were, like, setting up to record, I have an update. Update. 
on the award-winning Glee Curse episode. Holy S. Yeah. So just before we started, uh, I was randomly on Twitter, and uh, dear listener Ashley uh, sent an article our way. Matthew Morrison, who uh, we know as uh, Mr. Shoe, I believe, okay. on the show. Of course. Uh, he uh, is currently a judge on the new season of So You Think You Can Dance. Of course. As of today, uh, which is technically uh, May 31st for us as yep. we are uh, recording. Yep. He got fired from the show for sending inappropriate messages to one of the contestants. Okay. I have a lot of follow-up questions. Yeah. I don't have a lot of information. I just know uh, the contestant was uncomfortable by the messages and went to a producer about it. Um, He slid into her DMs. Don't know what was said, but it made her uncomfortable. He is 43 years old. I don't know what contestant it was, but contestants can range between 18 and 30. You know what's funny? There was a story that came out about this a few days ago. And sure. the the headline to it, which, which was why I didn't really blink an eye, the yeah. way it was worded was he's been fired from the show for violating production protocols. And when I hear protocols now, production protocols especially, I think COVID. I think he's of he's course. violated a COVID rule. He hasn't, you know, done something that followed the rules in some way. That was what I assumed. Yeah. And a friend of mine said to me, oh, Lauren, no, no, it's got to be something old. It's got to be old-fashioned harassment. <laughs> And boy, oh boy, was she right. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I, when I saw it, my initial instinct was I knew something was off about that guy because I kept diving into him and I couldn't find anything. And I was That's like, it right. feels weird that there's nothing about him. Well, there is now. Interesting. So, well, listen, I... Ooh, I'm very curious to see what comes out in the next week or so, because it makes me yeah. feel like we're obviously, if we've learned anything, mm-hmm. uh, if mm-hmm. someone comes forward with, with impropriety, usually it's not the first time. So I'm, I'll be curious to see if there's going to be more stories of people coming forward now oh, that this has yeah. come out. Oh, um, yeah. Interesting. So if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about an episode we did on the show called The Glee Curse. Check it out. It's a romp. Also, award-winning. Um, <laughs> that episode did win a communicator award. It did. Um, which I'm just very proud of uh, for so many reasons. But anyway. Yes. Uh, it's probably my favorite episode of the show that we've done. So if you haven't listened to it, give it a listen. Um, but this is wild. This is wild. Of course, for the yeah. people who are like, also, what's the concept? Well, the television show Glee has a lot of controversy surrounding it. And Chrissy curated that episode beautifully. Found a lot of dirt, and and now again, it's not over. It, it's not over for no. me. It was never over. <laughs> Get in the water. <laughs> it always comes back to Gosling, doesn't it? Um, it does. It does. Interesting. Well, yeah. I hope. Uh, I listen. I'm glad that the person spoke up. That is a really awkward, tough position to be in. I have yes. been in, personally. I've been in positions like that before. And it, it pre me too though years and years ago, 
Um, and it's hard. It's hard, especially when the person is, I don't need to explain, is in a position of power. It is hard. So I commend this person for coming forward because that it takes a lot of bravery, really, truly. So yes. I, hope, uh, I hope that there isn't more. But if there is, then I hope that those people are inspired to also do what they got to do. A hundred percent. Look, if I need to do Glee Curse 2. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> Look, yeah, if I need, if, if, if Glee number two needs to make a, you know, an appearance, then so be it. I just got a light goosebump. I mean, look, I'm already considering, like, what other shows can I potentially do that on? Because, yeah, I I, I came alive. I know. That episode, I came alive. Um, and the great reminder of that is the award that is back there on my <laughs> shelf. Uh, I do have a light that I – <laughs> I had it in my background last week. Mm-hmm. Um, I know only so many people watch the video. But uh, – <laughs> I, as I was, I watched the episodes back to make the promos. And while I was watching it, I was like, oh, you can't really tell. That's the awards. I should get a light back there. And I hap- just hap- very basically said it to my husband in a very like, I should get a light maybe. And suddenly he was gone out of the office downstairs, digging around in our home. And he brought up a light because we had bought one to put. In a, we basically cleared out a closet and took the door off, and that's where the cats eat. But I worried it got too dark in there, so we installed a little light, uh, and it happened to be a two-pack of lights. So I have this light back there, and so I'm like, oh, I'll do it. But it's got these sticky things that you attach, and I'm worried once I put it on, I won't be able to move it right. without mucking the shelf and where it is right now i'm like oh but i know that there's a third award that's in in your home that i have not picked up yet yes so i'm like it would be nice i don't want to put it in a spot and then it's off center from where the awards are well also keep in mind three's only the beginning baby oh if you think i haven't already considered i should just put it in the middle so they can all be seen Mm -hmm. (laughs) ridiculous the point is it's uh, it's nice. It's nice. I also realize I have haphazardly tossed the light on top of some books back there because uh, I was in a rush. But well, it's this fine. is making me it's- think there's a light over at that Chucklehead's place. That's a Rocky Horror Picture Show reference. Um, not the like Chucklehead part, lot. but you know, uh, <clears throat> it's always a song for me. I love of it. Of course. I love that. I love all of yeah. this. You know, I was cleaning over off my shelves recently and because uh, I was going to have some people over and I realized that all of my shelves were just Funko Pops. Uh, yeah. So many. And I was like, you know, I, I love the Fungos. You got to love my Pops. Corn Pops. Wow. <laughs> my brain, my <laughs> oh, brain is boy. synapsing mm-hmm. in a way that it is not necessary. Anyway, but I was like, you know, maybe it would be nice to have some some not completely grown up shelves. But just a little bit, like somewhere in the middle. I want to have like an area that's all the the pops, you know? Of course. Um, And so there was a shelf where I was like, you know, I think I'm going to put all my awards on this one. Like all the awards that I have on hand. And it's so interesting because then I was like, oh, but then are people going to think that I'm being braggadocious or whatever? Like, ah, does that look self-involved? I have a photograph of myself 
wearing short shorts that I blew up to three foot tall on my wall and I'm worried about the awards? Then I thought, well, maybe you're worried about the awards because in combination with the picture of your legs, maybe that feels like a bit much. But then I was also just like, I, if I can't celebrate who I am and what I've done, then what's the damn point in my own home? Yes! What are we doing? You do you! Yes, I don't have wedding photos. I don't have children. You know what pictures are on this wall? My beautiful children, who are the animals. And pictures of, of me looking hot as hell. And you know what I'm getting added yeah. to the mix? The awards that I've won. Because I goddamn should. Yes! Oh, yes. You'll love what I've taken away from this. <laughs> you make a comment about like, you know what? I think I want, I'm going to move some of my Funkos. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, Oh, I should see if she wants help organizing them and book a trip. <laughs> because, because nothing gets me jazzed like organization. Like I will wake up one day and be like, you know what? I'm going to organize and it's going to be the best day of my life. I just, I love putting things where they belong. I just, it's just something I really love. And I, I think I've even told it on the, on the show, but I have the dream of in my basement one of my walls I want to turn into a, like a full bookshelf, built-in bookshelf, and fill it with Funko Pops. And I know people are like, oh, I don't know if you have enough to fill it. And I say, you know what? You're right. So I've ordered a lot. Uh, <laughs> and they just keep arriving. Like, I I got to a point where I counted how many were coming, and it was a frightening number. Um, they have not all arrived yet. They show up randomly, and it's a real delight um, to, to me, not to my husband. He's sure. always like, what is, it doesn't matter. Like, he doesn't care. They're all over my home because I currently don't have a space where I can put some of them. But I recently, um, I won't give any spoilers, but, uh, Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Season four, part mm -hmm. one, released four days ago. Uh, we happened to have, uh, our dishwasher died, uh, and so we had to get a new one. It, the new one delivered on that the same day. And the gentleman who uh, was bringing it into the house was signing paperwork and said, what's the date? And I said, oh, it's May 27th. And he went, oh, okay. Like, I was very proud. And he went, oh, okay. That's where the conversation ends, Christy. But no, no. Then I went, it's the day Stranger Things comes back like a nerd. And the guy was just like, oh. Oh, yeah, like I've only seen like a season and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, look, years ago, because it's been three years now, when season three came out, I had not seen season one or two. I had heard a lot about it. And so my husband and I were like, you know what? We've got a, like a month and a half. Let's binge the first two seasons. So we, and then if we're into it, we continue on with season three. We were into it. And I loved it. And then just kind of, it's been so many years since then that I had forgotten how much I loved it. And so the new stuff came in. And I was like, okay, here we go. And I, within seconds, I'm yelling at the TV. I'm screaming because nobody screws with my kids. Like I have said multiple times that there are specific children in this show I would like to adopt as my own I have turned to my husband every single episode of this season and just gone, just so you know, I 
I think of Eleven as our daughter. <laughs> because <laughs> I would love to bring her into my home. Uh, I just, I love so much of it. And there's just, oh God, I love it. But I had forgotten this love. And <laughs> I've been reminded now, my husband and I uh, have our movie, we alternate movie picks. And sometimes in an evening, we'll ask each other, like, are you picking a movie? And sometimes that person goes, you know what? I'm just not feeling it tonight. We can just watch a TV show, then move on with our lives. Well, it was my pick. And he's like, are you picking a movie? And I went, I I'd actually rather just continue to watch Stranger Things. And he's like, okay, great. We'll put on a couple episodes. And then the next day, he's like, oh, okay, you're picking a movie tonight? And I went, you know what? I, I think I'd like to continue watching Stranger Things. We had three episodes left to go. And he's like, okay, okay. They're like hour 20 each episode. So I said, okay. he's like, okay, yeah, let's just, uh, let's finish it off. And I was like, oh, but it's like, it's a lot. So we get to like almost 1030 at night. And he's like, he lets it roll into the last one. And I went, are you sure? And he checks the time and it was an hour 38. And he was like, oh, yeah, I don't think I can do that. It's uh, <laughs> it's going to be too late for me because he has to work in the morning. And I went, yeah, you're right. That's more than fine. Did I say, that's fine. We'll wait and watch it tomorrow. No, I said, that's cool. I'll let you know how it was tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, to which, watch it again. Yeah, uh, and I would, and I will. Uh, but then he, he proves uh, why he's the man that I married. And he goes, give me a second. And he starts looking through his phone and he goes, all right, I don't have any meetings in the morning. I can call in sick. Let's do this. <laughs> so, so we grabbed a snack, uh, hit the can, and got into that final one. And when it was done, I went, I think tomorrow I'm going to start at the beginning and start from season one. I have a couple of pieces of feedback, <laughs> given what you've just told yes. me. One, yes. these episodes are an hour 20 to an hour 38 each. Because to that uh, I say, it's the true yeah. crime and cocktails of television. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because uh, there are seven, eight episodes, I think, something like that, in this section that are like hour 20-ish. Uh, the, the second part comes out July 1st, it's two episodes. One is like an hour 20. The other one's two and a half hours. They're making a movie a week. Like every episode is a they movie. They are. They That's are. That's wild. Um, it is. And look, I am so obsessed with this show that not only have I pre-ordered the entire series, season four Funko Pop series of... These characters, plus I have a season three eleven on the way. Um, I would like all of the Elevens and all of the Dustins and all of the um, Steves. And then the Susie. They are specifically my favorite. I will eventually try and get as many of them as possible. Not the point. The point is, so obsessed that I got all of these Funkos coming because they're not even out yet. Um, but can't be stopped. Uh, I've got to have something to put on that shelf that doesn't exist yet. Of course. Uh, but also, and this is going to surprise you. Oh. Every July 1st, it is Canada Day in our home country. Yeah. 
Uh, in my home, we call it Keanu Day, and we celebrate the lovely Keanu Reeves yeah. uh, and watch his movies throughout the day. Um, it's always a delight, and I couldn't love it more. I learned that the second part of season four, Stranger Things, comes out July 1st, and I turned to my husband and went, I'm, I'm so sorry, but Keanu's going to have to pause. We're Whoa. going to binge that for the day. And then I found out it's only two episodes and like, I don't know, four or five hours. And then I went, okay, great. So we binge it for the afternoon and the day on speed. Done. <laughs> Listen, that, I mean, that sounds like a, a beautiful, a beautiful day. Yeah. I'm That's already thinking I'm going to, oh, I like that. I'm already thinking, uh, Ash Family Punch is coming out to play. Oh, it's got to. It's definitely got to. Listen, I truthfully have only watched season one of Stranger Things. I I yeah. obviously have to get back on board. I've got to get up to date. Christy did mention, like, potentially being interested in going to a con, like a Stranger Things con. And I was like, well, I guess I better hurry up. And then I was just thinking as yeah. you were talking, now you're going to love this because I'm going to reference something that I don't know about because I haven't seen it yet. But I just sure. had an image of you and I in the little, like, um, the little ice cream outfits, the little scoops ahoy or whatever they are, the little yeah. sailor suits. That would be uh-huh. cute. The two of us. So cute. Yeah. You have a Robin sass, and I know that you don't understand that. Nope. But you do. And I'll I'll tell you this. I, oh boy, I can't be in the same room as Joe Keery, but... <laughs> <laughs> Gosh darn it, I'd try. Listen, the last thing I have to say on the matter is simply Mm -hmm. David Harbour. (laughs) (laughs) That's a shout out to our Bruce MacArthur episode of the show. Um, That's nice. If that doesn't make sense to you, give it a listen. It will then. (laughs) Um, Look, what a gift in my life. Uh, But we're not talking about MacArthur or Harbour or any of the above in this episode. We are talking, of course, the case of Susan Cox Powell. This was the May Patrons Poll winner. We, of course, are on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cocktails. We have a lot of bonus content over there. And one of the things we offer is a poll every month where you can vote on a case we will cover on this, the main podcast feed. And this was our May winner. So if you're not familiar with the case, never fret, my pet. I'm going to get you up to speed right now. In December 2009, Susan Cox Powell vanished from her home in West Valley City, Utah. Right from the start of the investigation, police suspected that Susan's husband, Josh, might be involved as he conveniently took their toddler sons on a camping trip the night that Susan went missing. In the more than decade since Susan's disappearance remains a mystery, in, in a, sorry, in the more than decade since, Susan's disappearance remains a mystery, which now includes the deaths of five more family members. So join us as Christy navigates through Josh's lies, separating fact from fiction in an insatiable hunt for the truth. I'm so sorry. I should have honored your commas. That was on me. I'm a little unhinged at the moment. Just like it's not your writing at all. It was me. No, I I just... An insatiable hunt for the truth. Oh, stop. <laughs> I don't love it. No, like, true story. Um, I was further behind yesterday than uh, I was anticipating. Uh, partially because when we watch a movie at night, I will often work on my notes. But when we watch Stranger Things, 
I have a hard time focusing on notes because I'm too busy screaming at my TV. Of course. Um, sometimes enjoy, sometimes not. But um, <laughs> I, I had a dream last night that we were getting ready to record and I went to send you the timeline and you were like, but it's blank. And so oh. I'm like, I panicked. So I woke up this morning and was like, I can't, I can't send it blank. So I wrote it this morning and went, yeah, I, I think that's it. <laughs> and finished my notes and went back to it and went, what are you doing? Just, you're not Hemingway for crying out loud. How dare you? <laughs> I don't like you talking about my best friend that way. <laughs> sure, sure. I think you give him a run Hemingway for his damn anyway. money. You'd, you'd oh, give him a run you for were, his money. You, you with his guy. writing and me, I'd give him a run for it with the drinking. Yeah. What I'm saying is oh. bring it on, Hemingway. Bring it. <laughs> oh, like I I don't even know where I am anymore. But I've had is. half a can. They were cans. They were just cans. Uh, that's speed. I've had half a can of this sparkling and mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm loose and buzzy. That's all I'm going to say. I can't wait, because look, you're you're not going to want to be sober for this. Oh, boy. There's going to be some rage. Yeah, I don't know a lot about this case, uh, but I know that this is, a, this is a tough one. So I'm buckled in. I'm ready yeah. to go. Yeah. Take us on this insatiable <laughs> journey. Search. Treasure hunt for the truth. Yeah. Oh, well, you know... I'm going to give a disclaimer off the top. I will also warn partway through when we're going to get to the worst part, I will give you a warning that we're going to get there. So I will warn later on again. But for now, uh, this episode will contain mentions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, and child abuse. Trigger warning for those who need it. Susan Marie Cox was born October 16th, 1981 in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Susan was the third of four daughters born to Chuck and Judy Cox. The family lived in Alaska before moving to Puyallup, Washington in 1994. In high school, Susan's future plans included becoming a beautician, but her biggest dream was to be a wife and mother. Friends described Susan as almost impatient to get married. And I get it. Girls from our generation were taught from birth to dream of their wedding day, not of their future. So I get it. Tracy uh, Ellis Ross really did like a really great quote about like, we women were born to focus on their wedding day, not on their future. It was, yeah, it was powerful. Uh, in November 2000, Susan met Josh Powell during a dinner party at Josh's apartment. The pair were also classmates at an LDS church service, church institute of religion course. Uh, they became engaged just two months later. And on April 6, 2001, Josh and Susan got married at the Portland, Oregon Temple. At the time, Josh was 23. Susan was 19. Shortly after their wedding, the newlyweds moved in with Josh's father, Steve Powell, using the dining room as a makeshift bedroom. Josh had a bachelor's degree in business, but he didn't have the best track record for keeping jobs, so they ended up moving to West Valley City, Utah in 2004. Although it turns out that 
The move was partially uh, due to issues with Josh's father, Steve, but we will get into those later on. Not long after the move, Josh and Susan added to their family with the birth of Charles Joshua Powell on January 19th, 2005, and Braden Timothy Powell on January 2nd, 2007. Susan was a, tra- was a trained cosmetologist, but she took a job with Wells Fargo Investments to help provide for their family, as Josh continued to struggle with work. And while Josh and Susan's life looked idyllic from the outside, their marriage was in serious trouble. At times, Josh was physically abusive towards Susan, pushing her on at least one occasion. Susan said that Josh uh, had turned into someone completely different from the man she had married, but she was determined to repair their relationship. On the morning of December 7th, 2009, Josh's mother received a phone call from Debbie Caldwell, the Powell children's caregiver. Debbie said the children had not been dropped off at daycare and she couldn't reach either Susan or Josh. So his mother called 911 to say their son, that her son and his family couldn't be reached and there were no tire tracks in the snow to indicate that the family had recently left the house. Police arrived and asked the family if they could break into the house as they feared the Powell family had been victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, interesting. So police entered the Powell house. They immediately noticed two large box fans pointed at the wet spot on the couch that had recently been cleaned. Susan's purse, along with her wallet and ID, were found in the master bedroom, but there was no sign of Susan, Josh, or the kids. At 3.02 p.m., Giovanna Owings, a neighbor of the Powells, got through to Josh on the phone. He told her he would be home soon and that Susan was at work. But according to Wells Fargo Investments, Susan hadn't arrived that morning. After he hung up with Giovanna, Josh drove south for 20 minutes, then called Susan's cell phone at 3.36 p.m. He left a voicemail saying, quote, We're on our way back. Hopefully you got to work okay. Soon, the police got a hold of Josh and told him he needed to return home immediately. Josh agreed, but instead of going home, Josh drove to Susan's work and waited outside in the parking lot. He called Susan's cell phone again and said he'd arrived to pick her up. But why show up when multiple people have told you that Susan didn't show up at work that day? At 6.40 p.m., Josh finally arrived home and was taken to the West Valley Police substation for questioning. He claims he last saw Susan around midnight and that between 12.30 and 1 a.m., he packed up the kids and went camping in West Desert, even though there was a snowstorm coming in. In a later interview, Josh would claim he actually left between 1.30 and 2 a.m. That was, was there my, a question? That was my question. Was I was like, hold on, I just need you to, did I mishear you? No, it was no. the middle of the night. Got it. Correct. Yes. He said between 12.30 a.m. and 1 a.m. and then later said between 1.30 and 2 a.m. Either way, middle of the night. And there's a snowstorm coming and these are little kids. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, I'm not a camping enthusiast, but to those who are, I ask, would you ever take your two and four-year-old children camping in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter, in below freezing temperatures, with a storm coming in, 
I feel the answer is unlikely, especially since Josh was supposed to work the next morning. After an hour of questioning, Josh is released with the promise he will come to a scheduled meeting with the police the next morning. At this point, police felt there was not enough probable cause to get a search warrant for either the house or the van. And let me tell you, if I was a judge, I'd be giving so many search warrants. It'd be ridiculous. Like, if that's bad, I would be getting a lot of talkings too. I'll tell you that. Uh, the next morning at 10.30 a.m., Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves, and their mother, Tarika Powell, arrived at the Powell house to find Josh frantically cleaning. He's doing laundry. He's vacuuming. He's cleaning out the family van. And this behavior is very suspicious right away because Josh didn't normally clean. But he was also supposed to be at the police station for an interview. By the time he arrived for that interview at 12.40 p.m., he was almost four hours late. He offered no excuse or explanation as to why he was late. Josh was told that Susan's cell phone had been found in the family's Chrysler Town & Country minivan. Investigators questioned why Josh would call the phone when it was in his possession the entire time. He simply said, quote, I forgot I had it. This is getting why better and better. <clears throat> yeah. By this time, police had a search warrant for the Powell House and family van. So at the end of the interview, police told Josh the van would be ready in like 15, 20 minutes. But instead of waiting, Josh called a taxi, went to the airport, and rented a car. He then went off the grid for 20 hours. His cell phone was turned off, and to this day, no one knows where Josh went or who he may have seen. Based on logs from the car rental company, Josh drove 806 miles, or 1,297 kilometers, that day. Some have speculated that Josh might have met up with his father, Steve Powell, as he was missing from work that day, and also had his phone turned off. At the time, Steve was living in uh, Puyallup, Washington, which is 849 miles, or 1,366 kilometers, from West Valley City, where Josh was living. I wish there was a way to know how far Steve's vehicle may have gone that day, because I am convinced they met halfway, maybe around Ontario, Oregon, which is like 400 miles or 644 kilometers from where Josh rented the car. Investigators later learned that uh, when they asked Josh to, comp that, to give over his cell phone during the second interview, Josh removed the phone's SIM card before handing over his cell phone. Then he bought another phone and put his SIM card in the new phone. The phone was activated in Tremonton, Utah, which is 82 miles or 131 kilometers north of West Valley City. It's also situated right where Interstate 15, which leads in and out of West Valley City, intersects with Interstate 84, which leads right to Ontario, Oregon. I'm not saying I got excited when I was like, oh, so it is possible. But I, I really did. Uh, it's also possible that Josh and Steve met somewhere else. Or maybe they didn't meet at all. But what are the odds that there is activity on both Josh and Steve's cell phones on December 7th and December 9th 
but they both had their phones turned off for the entirety of December 8th. If Josh truly believed that his wife was missing, why would he turn his phone off at all? And why did Steve miss that day of work? I promise we will get into Steve later on. On December 9th, police executed a search warrant for Josh Powell's home where they found tiny droplets of blood on the floor tile next to the couch, the same couch which had been recently cleaned and had a wet spot on it when the police first arrived December 7th. Days later, the DNA would come back as a match to Susan, as well as to an unknown male contributor. To the best of my knowledge, I don't believe Josh ever provided a sample of any kind. I don't understand. Yeah. Oh, that's a conversation we've had on this show before where I'm like, can't they force it? Yeah, but yeah. I guess not. I guess not. Again, get us as a judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to be breaking a lot of, a lot of rules. A lot of <laughs> yeah, rules we'll, broken. We won't be a judge long, but we'll, we'll get some great stuff done. Yeah. Uh, on December 10th, police inspected the area of West Desert, where Josh claimed to have taken his sons on the night when Susan went missing. But despite searching for multiple days, police never found a recent campsite or any evidence that Josh was there. Then nearly two weeks after Susan's disappearance, on December 18th, Josh packed up the kids and went to visit his father in Puyallup, Washington, for the holidays. So I know I've thrown a lot of information and a lot of dates in a small span. So we're going to do a very quick recap of events, starting with the day that Susan was last seen. At noon on December 6th, 2009, Susan and her children attended church at her local ward. At 2.29 p.m., Susan called a friend from her cell phone. At some point in the afternoon, neighbor Giovanna Owings came to the house for a visit. During Giovanna's visit, Josh and the children were in the kitchen making pancakes, which is odd as Josh never cooked. He brought a plate to Susan, and soon after, around 5 p.m., Susan said she was suddenly exhausted and needed to go lie down. And we've been doing this job long enough now to think if someone who's never cooked made a meal out of nowhere, and after someone consumed it, they became incredibly tired, is it possible those pancakes were poisoned or laced with something? Yep. When Susan went to lie down, Josh announced he was taking the boys sledding, and he got up quickly into their van and left. He left so quickly that Giovanna was still in the house when Josh and the kids drove off. Giovanna was the last non-family member to see Susan alive. At 8.30 p.m. that night, a neighbor sees Josh return home. Around 11.45 p.m., a neighbor hears a car alarm go off inside the Powell's garage. The neighbor said the interior lights uh, of the Powell's house all appeared to be off at the time. On December 7th, the children's caregiver gets concerned when the kids don't arrive at daycare. Josh's family is called, and Josh claims around midnight he took the boys camping in West Desert. Josh claims that Susan was sleeping in bed when he left. When the police arrive at the house, they find two large fans pointed at the couch. It has a wet spot on it, uh, and there are blood droplets on the floor next to the couch. Josh shows up to his second police interview four hours late and then just refuses to cooperate with police. A week 
After Susan's disappearance, Josh hires an attorney, and the following day, he refuses to show up for a scheduled third interview with police. On December 18th, Josh and the kids head to Washington for the holidays. However, on January 6th, exactly one month after Susan was last seen, Josh and his brother Michael return to West Valley City, where they pack up the Powell's belongings and outright move to Washington. And I'm sorry, but if you think that your wife is missing, why would you move? Yeah. If there was a possibility that she could come home, why leave the place that she would return to? I know that I'm not qualified to give this opinion, but moving one month after your spouse goes missing is not the behavior of a man who believes his spouse is alive and will return home safely. I agree. It's suspicious as hell, Josh, especially when it was one month to the day. Also sketchy, on January 28, 2010, Josh returned to West Valley City to make repairs on the house so he could rent it out. I would be very interested to know what repairs Josh had made. Yeah. In February 2010, Susan's family holds a press conference in which they claim Josh was physically abusive towards Susan on at least one occasion. They also claimed that Susan had told friends she was planning on leaving Josh before their ninth wedding anniversary, which was coming up in April 2010. In 2008, Susan had visited a divorce lawyer to find out what her options were. The lawyer told Susan she should properly document their assets in case Josh tried to sell something. So on July 29, 2008, Susan recorded a video where she went around their home showing off their family assets. In the video, Susan said it was just in case anything happened to her or her family. The video was then placed in a safety deposit box. When Susan first went missing, her co-workers told investigators about the safety deposit box, which Josh had no idea about. Inside the box, police found the video, as well as a will, handwritten by Susan on June 28, 2008. The front of the will said, quote, for family, friends of Susan, all except for Josh Powell husband, I don't trust him. And if that wasn't clear enough, also written on the front was, quote, Josh Powell not allowed to possess this. In the will, Susan said that she and Josh, quote, have been having extreme marital stress for about three or four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work which would not be accessible to my husband. Susan said that Josh threatened to destroy her if they ever got divorced, but probably the most disturbing line that Susan wrote was, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Oh, boy. So Susan was clearly skeptical of Josh. So let's take a closer look. Joshua Powell was born January 20th, 1976, in Puyallup, Washington. His mother said that as a teenager, Josh became withdrawn, unwilling to interact, even to make eye contact for a year or two. When Josh was 13 or 14, he tried to take his own life. In 1998, Josh studied at the University of Washington, where he met Catherine Terry Everett, at an activity for LDS singles in Spokane. 
The couple started dating, and eventually Catherine moved into Josh's apartment. Catherine said Josh became possessive. She said, quote, he would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. If I was going to visit them, he had to come too. I couldn't go by myself. Catherine did an interview with KSL-TV, and the following are some quotes of hers about Josh. Quote, he didn't want me to have any friends. He only wanted me to have him. Quote, he kept me on a short leash, and I didn't even realize that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. And finally, quote, every time I got my check, he had me sign it over, and he'd stick it in his account. Catherine also said that Josh was controlling and that he drained both of their bank accounts and that he seemed repulsed by any form of physical affection. Catherine went to visit a friend in Utah in 1999 and realizing the freedom that she was missing at home, just decided not to go back. She ended things with Josh over the phone. They had dated for roughly 16 months at the time. Josh often wrote about Catherine in his personal journals, even long after they broke up. A lot of those particular entries he had written over the letters multiple times, in in like an angry way, and then he used whiteout to take Catherine's name off of it. So I guess we could say that Josh held a grudge. Josh was described by Susan's friends and family as loud, overbearing, obsessive, extremely controlling, and his opinions were the only right ones. Mm. Those closest to Susan tried to tell her not to marry Josh, including Susan's mother, who said, quote, when I look at Josh, I see darkness. Oh, no. One of Susan's sisters described Josh as creepy, but harmless. But somehow, Susan was young and in love, and eager to get married. And good God, at 19, I get it. As someone who was engaged at 19, I absolutely get it. Totally. Would that marriage have been a disaster? Yes. Have people been engaged at 19 and their marriage has worked out and it's been beautiful? 100%. Absolutely. In this case, uh, not so much. So... Josh refused to attend church with his family as he had become disillusioned with the LDS. But since Susan was known for her strong faith, Josh not going to co- not going to church caused a lot of tension between them. Josh was also against certain religions. Uh, the police started to consider when police started to consider Josh a suspect or person of interest in Susan's disappearance Josh's biggest concern about going to jail was that his children would go to his sister Jennifer and she would raise them to be Mormon which is an interesting concern yep. to have Josh. yep then there's the fact that Josh would undermine Susan with their children Friends say whatever Susan would tell the kids to do, Josh would tell them the opposite. For example, uh, Susan would put the kids to bed. Josh would go wake them up and say something like, Mommy is so mean. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, which is a level of bullshit that enrages me. Parents should always be united front when it comes to their children, even parents that are divorced or separated. But telling the kids 
who were toddlers at the time that mommy is mean for making them go to bed? Fucking stop. Just stop. If children were meant to live in a world where they slept randomly whenever they fall asleep, great. But sometimes they fight the nap because they don't think they don't need it, but they do. But so this was, I mean, this is all this, about this abuse. This is controlling. This is just and, pure yes. abuse. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And as in his relationship with Catherine, Josh continued to have money troubles when he met Susan. Due to his extravagant spending, Josh filed for bankruptcy in 2007 after becoming $200,000 in debt. And it's surprising to hear that Josh's spending habits were over the top when he was known to be rather cheap. There was a time when Josh got mad at Susan for giving the children each a full hot dog instead of just making the kids share one. Josh also got rid of the family's second vehicle, claiming that gas was too expensive. But if we've learned anything doing this show, we know that selling the car was likely more about Josh trying to control Susan. Without the second car, Susan had to bike seven miles or 11 kilometers to work every day. And even though Susan was the main source of income for the family, Josh completely controlled the money in the household. Susan was only allowed a very small spending allowance which she needed to use to buy gas and food. And then there's the story about Susan's wedding ring, which Josh coaxed Susan to tell on their wedding video, as though it was some sort of beautiful story that they wanted to remember for all time. Basically, they went ring shopping at an LDS store, and when Susan picked one out, Josh made her pay for it because Susan got a discount there. Josh turned around and wrote her a check for the ring, and hey, I get wanting a discount. But it seemed like a pointless story to bring up, especially on your wedding video. Like, it just, it was like, ooh, tell them about the ring. And that was the story? It, yeah, it, that, it just, it, it fell flat. It was like, this is something people with emotions do. And without realizing, he missed the mark. Yeah, it also feels to me as I'm building my own profile, psychologist hatting, that he just wanted to show how much he could control her. That he was showing the world that it was like, I even got her to buy her own wedding ring so I could get a discount. Oh, great point. That's how much she loves me. You know what I mean? Great point. Yeah. See, this is why we do this. Well. (laughs) In an email sent to a friend in June 2008, Susan said that, She was the one who was working, and yet Josh was the one controlling their money. She said Josh was, quote, usually rude, yelling, and barking commands. In another email, Susan said that she wanted to get marriage counseling, but Josh had refused. She said, quote, every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with, it feels like a never-ending cycle. But I'm too afraid of the consequences, losing my kids, him kidnapping me, divorce, or actions worse on his part. Now, when I first started researching, or well, when I first start researching a case in general, I do my best to stay as impartial as possible to be able to see every possible angle. And honestly, Josh made that very difficult for me to even want to look elsewhere. Yeah. So here are a list of things that Josh did that I find incriminating. Great. When he randomly made food for the first time ever, and after consuming it, Susan became so tired she had to go lie down. 
That screams poisoning to me, but of course I'm just speculating. Yep. The fact that Josh took his two young children camping in the middle of the night, in below freezing temperatures, in a snowstorm. Then there's the fact that police couldn't find a sign of anyone camping in that area. The fact that he chose to leave after midnight and drive over an hour to camp when he worked the next morning. What's the point of that? It's going to be dark the entire time you're there. It's not like you're sightseeing. No. You know, the whole point is drive all the way there just so you can sleep and then drive home. It Stop it. Josh ignoring numerous phone calls from family and friends until 3 p.m. Then, even after being told Susan was missing, he calls Susan and says, I hope you got to work okay. The fact that he purposely drove 20 minutes south before making a phone call to her, uh, where he claimed he was almost home, uh, the only reason you do something like that is to make sure your cell phone pings from a different tower. The fact that police called Josh and told him return home immediately, and he went and sat outside Susan's work instead, claiming he was picking her up, even though multiple people said she hadn't arrived yet. The fact that Josh started randomly cleaning the house the day after Susan disappeared. Not only did he never clean, but it's super suspicious when he's suddenly cleaning out the minivan and wiping down walls. Not to mention the fact that the couch was recently cleaned and there were fans blowing on it. Just one week after Susan's disappearance, Josh liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, cancelled her regularly scheduled chiropractic appointments, and pulled his children from daycare, telling the caregiver, quote, We won't be needing you anymore. And exactly one month after Susan was last seen, Josh and his kids moved to Washington. These are not the actions of a man expecting his wife to come home. No. Oh, and then there's the fact that Josh never once joined a search to look for his wife. Oh, my God. And to those who are screaming based on all of these reasons, why wouldn't the police arrest Josh and take him to trial even without a body? Well, for one thing, police didn't want to act too quickly, only to have Susan appear months later. The Elizabeth Smart case had made them all apprehensive to move forward without a body. Uh, In June 2002, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from her bedroom in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was discovered nine months later, being held just 17 miles or 28 kilometers away. So investigators also had a lot of evidence that made Josh's father look pretty guilty, uh, which would be enough to cause reasonable doubt in a trial. So the investigators were waiting for solid proof to make their move. On the one-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, Josh and his father Steve did a lot of TV interviews, you know, as you would do on the anniversary of your loved one going missing. You want to get the word out. You want to let people know you're still looking, all those kinds of things. And you would think he'd plea for Susan's safe return or beg the public for information. But instead, they claimed that Susan was mentally unstable, fixated on sex, suicidal, and that she had a history of promiscuity. Oh my god. And where do they claim they got all this information from? From Susan's private journals that she wrote when she was a teenager. 
Josh also used the interviews to claim Susan left him for another man, while Steve claimed Susan was in love with him. <laughs> what? It, yeah, it gets worse. Oh. Uh, and from what I can tell, absolutely none of these claims are true. So are we in another situation where something happens to a wife and the husband is potentially guilty? Well, according to Jen Oxborough, yes, that is her real name. Yes, it's spelt the same. It's wild. Uh, she's the executive director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Uh, Oxborough is such an uncommon name yeah. in North America. I am truly convinced I need to look into whether or not we're actually related. But, you know, uh, according to Jen Oxborough, 30% of female homicides in the United States are committed by current or former partners. In 2000, in Utah, that percentage was 42%. And some years, that number jumped as high as 55%, specifically Utah. And we've talked on this show multiple times. When a wife goes missing or is murdered, the husband is often involved. We spoke about it at great length in the Malcolm Webster episode. Yep. And since we know it is unfortunately a common occurrence, it's easy to be quick to consider Josh as a suspect, especially when, in the months leading up to Susan's disappearance, Susan's co-workers said Susan mentioned that Josh loved all those forensics shows, he was fascinated by how criminals covered up their crimes. Uh, he would watch shows and say things like, if I were to do that, this is what I'd do. And look, a lot of true crime buffs do that. But then Josh allegedly said outright that the best place to hide a body would be in a mine. He said, quote, if you knocked a little, sh a little of the shaft loose... It would all come tumbling down, and no one would really want to travel down it because they're all so unsafe. When investigators searched his computer, Josh had recently searched Simpson Springs, Utah, Eli, Nevada, and other remote areas that are known for having mines. In August 2011, investigators searched mines near Eli, Nevada, as well as areas in uh, Delta, Utah in September. According to the Bureau of Land Management, the number of mines in Utah could be between eight and 11,000, although no inventory has ever officially been done. I mean, Josh, buddy, you're making it easy. <laughs> it's yeah. just... Listen, I've already got so many thoughts and we're not even halfway through. So let's take a quick break, grab another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back with more about the Susan Cox Powell case on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking Susan Cox Powell. Before the break, uh, Christy was horrifying us with the story of Josh Powell. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling we're going to be learning more very shortly about his father, Steve. Yeah, it, it only goes down Yeah, from here. There's going to be – it's – again. oh, yeah. Um, I also uh, – quick apology. I realize now in my early disclaimer, I did forget to point out um, there would be mentions of suicide throughout this episode. So my apologies. Uh, it is our – trigger warning now yes slightly late but it's still in there yes so we have officially made it to the point where i have to go into more detail about steve powell i can not avoid him any longer and for those who are unfamiliar with this particular case just know that despite all of the episodes that we have done I truly believe that Steve Powell is the grossest and most deeply disturbed individual that we have ever talked about on this show. Wow. Even more than the serial killers? Yep. Wow. Every single thing that comes out of this man's mouth gives me the creeps. The more I learned about Steve, the less I wanted to talk about him at all. If I could, I would prefer to go through this whole episode without mentioning him at all. But he is such a huge part of this case, I would be doing this episode a serious injustice for not mentioning him. So, I couldn't find the exact date, but Steve Powell was born in either 1949 or 1950. Uh, in 1973, Steve met and married Tarika Martin in Ogden, Utah. Between 1975 and 1985, the Powells had five children, including, and this is in this specific order, Jennifer, Josh, John, Michael, and Alina. According to Jennifer, Steve was physically and mentally abusive towards the children. When they were young, some of them had problems with bedwetting, and Steve would make them lie down in an ice bath to try and shock it out of them. God. Steve's discipline was described as, quote, far more violent than necessary or fair. Later in life, Alina said that Steve was a good father and that they weren't victimized at all. I think we're all going to learn Alina was probably the most victimized. Got it. Steve also didn't believe in the school system, so he didn't make his kids attend. 
He also refused to teach or enforce any sort of limits on negative behaviors, which I'm not an expert, but I'd say is very a dangerous way to raise a child. Uh, Steve would also pit the boys against the girls, which probably explains why later in life the youngest, Alina, admitted she despised Josh growing up. Uh huh. And let me be clear, pitting your children against each other is damaging to everyone involved. Just stop. Stop comparing them to each other. Stop making them feel like they need to be the same as anyone else. Let them be their own people. So Steve uh, was also constantly negative towards his wife and tried to turn the children against her, which is something that his son Josh would later try and emulate in his own marriage. Yep. Steve also became disillusioned with the LDS church, which became a sore point between him and his wife. Again, something that Josh also did in his marriage. According to psychiatrist David Reese, quote, a child living with the family dynamics described in the Powell family often tries to appease a parent who terrifies them by usually subconsciously adopting their beliefs and thought patterns. David also said, quote, on some level, the child is going to align himself with the person he sees as a threat. Tarika worried that her sons were going to turn out just like Steve in their attitudes towards women. In a letter written to his father while referring to a specific woman, Josh wrote, quote, All she is good for is her body, right, Dad? Oh, God. Yep. Tarika's sister once said that the boys had, quote, A very distorted image of their own unquestionable right to do anything they darn well please, combined with a very deep contempt towards women in general and any authority at all. She also said she felt their behavior was encouraged by Steve. Steve also had a severe addiction to pornography and was known for sharing porn with his sons who were in their early teens at the time. Steve and Tarika's dysfunctional marriage officially came to an end when Steve said he was interested in polygamy, or specifically that he had a right to take another wife, and that he had his eyes on a specific woman, but she was already married. Um, Tarika refused to be part of it, and they divorced in 1992. During the divorce, Steve claimed that Tarika was mentally unfit and that she practiced witchcraft. His evidence of this was the fact that Tarika studied natural healing and herbs and that she had New Age mysticism and Mormon beliefs. Steve believed this combination meant, quote, witchcraft and devil worship. Okay. Tarika spoke about Steve's intense porn addiction, saying he, she believed that Steve needed serious medical help for the underlying problem that Tarika believes stemmed from his childhood. Allegedly, Steve and his three siblings were sent to live with their paternal grandparents and were told they'd never see their mother again. A year later, they were sent back to live with their mother. I don't know any more information about those circumstances, but there we have it. Uh, Tarika also said, quote, there have been times when I've been afraid of Steve and or the boys because of their extremely hateful behavior. She mentioned that Josh killed two, at least two pet gerbils. Oh, God. And that Josh and his brother John had both pushed and hit their mother on multiple occasions. 
Once when Tarika asked Josh to show her some respect, Josh said, quote, You have to earn respect, Mom. What have you done to earn my respect? Oh, wow. Then there was a time when Josh was in the kitchen and Tarika asked him to do the dishes. Josh turned to her with a butcher knife in his hand and said, quote, Don't push it, Mom. There was a massive tug-of-war over the children, who at the time ranged in age from 7 to 18. Josh was 16. In the end, Steve was given custody of the three boys, and Tarika was given custody of Alina. A couple years later, Alina also went to live with Steve. A friend of Steve's uh, later said that Steve often spoke of how much he absolutely hated his ex-wife, to the point where the friend was convinced that Steve outright hated women in general. So Steve was abusive and a terrible spouse and parent, but I described him as the most disturbing individual we've ever talked about. So I need us to jump back to the one-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, where Josh and Steve went on TV to say that Susan had likely run off with another man. They claimed she was obsessed with sex, and said they found proof in the journals that Susan had written as a teenager. And first, let me say, reading her private journals? Gross. Second, taking something that a teenager said at a time in their lives when hormones and emotions are going crazy, taking those thoughts and feelings as gospel for how Susan thought or felt as an adult, is absurd. I remember once, I believe I would have been like, maybe 10, maybe 11, I wrote in my diary a very angry entry because I had been to the store and I wanted to buy this littlest pet shop set, but my parents wouldn't let me. And I was livid. Like the world was ending. Poor me. Like no one's ever had it this hard. Did I realize later I was being a spoiled brat and there are way bigger problems in the world? Of course I did. But I was a child. So I would hate for someone to read that and be like, oh, well, she obviously never grew out of that. You know, I just feel like it's two wildly different times in your life you can't compare. Uh, Not to mention, there was never proof given to support the Powell's claims of what was written in these journals. They threatened to post some of it online, but were stopped by the Cox family. Also, publishing someone's private journals is a violation. I remember the day that I heard Courtney Love was publishing Kurt Cobain's journals. I was livid. And to this day, I have not read them or purchased the book in any way. They were his private journals. I refuse. If you want them or you've read them, that's your journey. This is mine. Uh, I just felt if he wanted the world to read them, he would have published them himself. And same with Susan. If she wanted those journals read, she would have shared them with people, which she did not. And more for more on Kurt Cobain, check out episode 44. So Josh and Steve are talking publicly about Susan's journals. And when investigators ask to see the journals, the Powells refuse to hand them over. So police just need proof that the journals were in Steve's house so that they could get a search warrant. But Steve never publicly said that they were in his house. So the police set up a ruse called a honkin' wave. (laughs) 
Basically, the idea is you gather a bunch of people, Susan's friends, family, volunteers, everybody you could get, and they stand on a busy street corner or somewhere on near a busy street. They have big signs, and all they're asking is for drivers passing by to honk their horn in memory of Susan. It is also known as a roadside rally. Uh, the whole point is just keep her name and her memory out there, that sort of thing. So the police chose a very specific place for the group to stand. It was a parking lot of a strip mall where Steve's bank was located because the police knew that Steve visited that bank every Saturday. So on Saturday, August 20th, 2011, the honk and wave began with Susan's father, Chuck, leading the charge as bait. Steve and Chuck often sparred in front of cameras when they saw each other, so police knew that Steve would approach Chuck if he saw him. News cameras were there filming, and when Steve went to the bank and saw Chuck with the group, he couldn't help himself and wandered right over. The two men shared some words, and then Steve just went off and kept talking, and when asked about Susan's journals, Steve said, quote, she was married to my son at the time she completed them, so they're his property. And that was enough to get the police a search warrant, which they executed August 25th. Alina called the entire thing a, quote, harassment campaign against her family. But she's a uh, strong, strong defender of her family. We're going to find out. So police execute the search warrant on Steve's house in Puyallup, Washington. The following is a list of things found in Steve Powell's home. Multiple laptops. More than 4,500 photos of Susan. Some that Susan didn't know were being taken, including <gasps> a photo of her in her underwear. Stop! Photos of Susan's head superimposed on various naked bodies. Photos of Steve masturbating to pictures of Susan. Plastic baggies with dates and Susan's name written on them containing cotton balls that Susan had used to remove her nail polish. Plastic baggies with dates and Susan's name written on them containing toenail and fingernail clippings and bits of hair. Plastic baggies with dates and Susan's name written on them containing used tampon applicators. Dozens of 8mm cassettes and VHS tapes. Steve was known for taking videos of everything, like weddings and family gatherings, and also incredibly disturbing videos of women. So unfortunately, we're going to focus on the videos. And yes, this does get disturbing. There were videos featuring dozens of women that Steve was stalking, as well as Steve masturbating to his own videos. Oh my God. There was a video of Steve following a woman in a parking lot. He says uh, he saw the woman in the store and she was wearing this really short miniskirt and he just wanted to, quote, get her climbing into her car. As with videos of Susan, Steve narrates the video, which makes me wonder if he had been sharing them with someone. For sure. There were videos of Susan. Sometimes the camera was shoved in her face, 
and sometimes the camera was peeking at Susan from another room. There were videos of Susan walking away with her hands covering her backside and Steve pleading with her to move her hands. He hid in his van in a parking lot and filmed Susan while she was leaving work. He said, quote, I had to get a picture of this dress. She is so beautiful. Then, quote, she's so beautiful. She knows that I'm here. <sighs> and when Susan gets into her car and her skirt rode up a little bit because, you know, physics, mm -hmm. uh, the edge of her slip kind of accidentally shows because she's getting into a car. Steve said, quote, she did that for me. Wow, that was good. Oh, my God. While secretly filming Susan through a window, Steve whispers, quote, God, I worship her. She just turns me on. I'm in a perpetual state of turned on when she's around. Steve took videos of clothing that belonged to Susan, saying, quote, Every time she gets in the shower, I'm anxious to get into her laundry. Oh, my God. He filmed her pants, his hands running around her pants, him zooming in on the size of her bra or the crotch part of her pants. He would describe in great detail how all the clothing smelled. There were disturbing videos of Steve putting some of Susan's clothing on a pillow and then lifting the clothing up to peek at the underwear he had also placed on the pillow. He would sometimes also put a photo of her head at the top of the pillow. There's a video uh, of his bathroom where he says, quote, Back here there's a jacuzzi. I'd love to spend a night here with Susan. There were videos of Steve facing the camera, sweaty and half-naked, talking about how much he loved her. He said, quote, I think she's the most beautiful thing that ever walked the earth. Oh, my God. Steve followed Susan around the house with the video camera, sometimes using a mirror to spy on her when she went to the bathroom. Oh, my God. Something else uh, he said on camera was, quote, I would just love to have her. I just don't think Josh appreciates appreciates her. Steve's obsession with Susan began in December 2001, when Josh and Susan moved in with him after their wedding. In a video, Steve said, quote, I've been in love with her for a year and a half or more now. Can't even think of anything else. And if the fact that Steve felt this way about his daughter-in-law wasn't gross enough, at the time his obsession began, Steve was 52 or 53, and Susan was 20. I can't imagine what Susan was going through. Having your father-in-law constantly sexually harass you in the home you're living in, based on the dozens of videos and 17 journals that police found Steve was full-on stalking Susan, and that level of severe emotional abuse is going to take a toll on a person. And then it's not like her husband was much help. Anyway. Yeah. So Steve posted love songs online about Susan under the pseudonym Stephen Chantry. Uh, Steve even confessed his feelings to Susan at some point in 2003. 
the conversation was picked up by Steve's camera. I don't know if he knew it was on or not. In it, Steve fully admits to being in love with Susan, saying, quote, I was extremely aroused, and you were somewhat aroused, at least, I thought. Susan responded, quote, I'm married to your son, and I should just be your daughter-in-law. That's where I'm comfortable. Steve then suggested to Susan, quote, Josh and I can just share you. Oh, God. And again, Susan turned him down. But later that night, he wrote in his journal, quote, I'm still convinced she loves me and is sexually attracted to me. <sighs> Followed by, quote, I want Susan to be my wife. Shortly after that, Susan and Josh moved to Utah. Yeah, I wonder why. And Josh even cut off contact with his father altogether. But eventually Josh reconnected with Steve despite Susan's feelings about it. Steve told Josh that Susan had exaggerated what happened, which is classic abuser behavior. Mm -hmm. Whenever Josh talked to his father, it caused an argument between Josh and Susan. The fact that Josh even wanted to continue a relationship with his father after finding out that Steve was infatuated with Josh's wife proves how controlling and manipulative Steve was with his own children. And it's awful to continue to let that man be in Susan's life after he emotionally abused her for years. In August 2011, Susan's best friend, as well as Josh's estranged sister Jennifer, both claimed that Steve made unwanted sexual advances at Steve at Susan. Steve denied ever making a, any unwanted advances. Even though there's all the video proof and photographic proof and uh, journal yes. proof. Although there's part of me that thinks, well, in his mind, it right. wasn't unwanted. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, deeply disturbed. Uh, when Steve was interviewed after Susan's disappearance, he said that he and Susan were in love and, quote, she seemed to crave my attention. Steve fantasized a relationship with Susan, but in reality, he stalked her and invaded her privacy. Later on, Steve told police that he and Susan had just full-on fallen in love. Alina claimed that Susan was the instigator and that Susan just wanted attention from Steve. And let me be clear, Alina, it is completely healthy for a young woman to want positive male attention. But Susan did not bring this on herself. Your father was a vile creep. In videos, Steve practically ignores the fact that Alina is even in the room and focuses all of his attention on Susan. And since Susan was only four years older than Alina, is it possible Alina was jealous of the attention that her father was giving Susan? Not specifically the type of attention, but rather the fact that all of his focus went to Susan? Again, Steve's unwanted attention was emotional and sexual abuse. Blaming a victim for a man giving them unwanted attention is gross. And if I may quote Jen Oxborough again, Quote, we don't go to someone who was a bank teller and was robbed and ask her why she had all that money, but we do this to victims of sexual assault crimes. And it's true, victims of sexual abuse are often blamed for what they were wearing or what they were drinking or how they were acting. It's disgusting, and I'm so fucking over it. Oh, yeah. she got a little, 
She got a little oh, spicy. Oh, I'm right there with you. I almost oh, started snapping at one point. I was like, yes. Uh, yes, Jen well, Oxborough. I, right? I See, yeah. there's something about Oxborough. I really got to look into that. You do. If we're related. And then find out if we're related to Dan Aykroyd. You know? Yep. Two different sides. You know? Who knows? Uh, and speaking of things that are disgusting, also found in Steve's video collection were videos that Steve had taken of the 8- and 10-year-old girls who lived next door. From a bedroom upstairs, Steve was able to see into their bedrooms and a bathroom in their house. He took pictures of the girls uh, using the toilet, in the bathtub, changing, all those kinds of things. Alina, who is forever her father's main defender, said, quote, "...it was pictures through an open window." If they're visible, they're visible. He didn't do anything wrong. Oh, she Alina. also said, quote, they made him out to be a monster. And Alina, that's because he was a monster. And I feel a lot of compassion for Alina because I can't imagine what she witnessed growing up. But to say that Steve did nothing wrong when he clearly did is very sad to me. Yes. Steve Powell was arrested September 22nd, 2011. And Charlie and Braden Powell were placed in state custody. The next day, Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy, filed for custody of the children. And four days later, they were granted temporary custody. Just days before the custody hearing, Michael Powell uh, created multiple websites claiming the Cox family abused and neglected the children. Oh, my God. To the best of my knowledge... They did not. And since there was no proof of these wild claims, on February 1st, 2012, a judge ruled that Charlie and Braden Powell would remain in the custody of Judy, Chuck and Judy Cox, but Josh would be allowed supervised visits. But during the search of Steve's home, 400 images of animated pornography depicting incest and bestiality was discovered on Josh's computer. When this came to light, the psychologist who submitted a report to say that Josh was an adequate father uh, had to alter his report and recommend that Josh undergo a psychosexual evaluation, which involves a polygraph. Now, to clear things up immediately, it has been proven that the pornographic images on Josh's computer were put there on the computer by its previous owner. Susan had purchased the computer secondhand. The photos were not easily found, so they were like, I think the word is, they were like cached in the computer or something. I don't know, computers. God, my husband's rolling his eyes. <laughs> I feel it now. <laughs> um, the photos weren't easy to find. Someone put them there years prior. Uh, so from what investigators can tell, that specific pornography did not belong to Josh, and they don't believe it was accessed by him either. But Josh was terrified of doing the polygraph portion of the evaluation because he said he didn't want to be asked questions about Susan. Prior to the porn discovery, the court-appointed psychologist interviewed Josh in late 2011 and submitted a report that said Josh had adequate parenting skills, steady employment history, no criminal record, and no history of domestic violence. 
Of course, we know there were years of domestic abuse, but none of it was officially recorded for the record. So at the time of the report, the psychologist recommended that Josh have supervised visitations with his children multiple times a week. Now, I want to say I don't blame this psychologist in any way. He did not have all the facts, such as Josh's history of violence towards women. Uh, When the psychologist learned of potential porn on Josh's computer, he didn't suggest any change to the visitation schedule. He simply added that Josh should undergo this psychosexual evaluation. So, this is the part of our show. Things are going to get quite difficult. Anyone familiar with this case will know where I'm going with this. Um, I'm going to try and be as brief as possible. Uh, But if needed, skip ahead a few minutes and uh, we just uh, won't think about it. If you're going to go along with us on this, we're all in this together. So, on February 5th, 2012, Josh had a scheduled supervised visitation with his children. He withdrew $7,000 from the bank and then bought gas. Social worker Elizabeth Griffin picked the children up from the Cox house and drove them to the house that Josh was renting. When Josh opened the door, he told the children he had a surprise for them, so they darted into the house. He then immediately slammed the door, keeping Elizabeth out, despite the fact that the visit legally required her to be there. Elizabeth called 911 to explain the situation, saying she could hear a child crying, she wasn't able to get into the house, she didn't know what to do. Uh, The 911 call broke me. Um, Just hearing this woman talking about, I just, I need help. Um, Hearing uh, the 911 operator say, well, we are going to send crews out to the more serious incidents first. And she was like, no, for real, this could be serious. You need to come here. Uh, Then at one point, Elizabeth says, quote, I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. During this time, Josh sent out some emails to family, his attorney and his pastor saying goodbye. He left a voicemail that said, quote, this is Josh. I'm calling to say goodbye. I am not able to live without my sons. I'm not able to go on anymore. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. Not one of his emails made any mention of Susan. Not potentially remorse for what he may have allegedly done. Not even concern for where she might be. Josh then spread gasoline throughout the house, soaking the living room area where he and the kids were found, and he lit a match. According to the autopsy, prior to the fire, Josh attempted to kill his children with a hatchet, which was found in the room. Both children sustained chopping injuries to their heads and neck. Charlie was just seven, and Brayden was five. The official cause of death for all three of them was carbon monoxide poisoning. Josh was 36 years old. Two five-gallon cans of gasoline were later found at the home. And I know I'm not familiar with the law, but I'm going to say the court failed those children. Yes, they did. And I'll get into it when I'm going to talk because they, Mm -hmm. yes, they did. If a parent is under suspicion of potentially murdering their spouse, 
Yes. They should not be allowed any contact with their children whatsoever. I am covered in goosebumps. That took a lot to get through. Uh, Steve and his family blamed the police for Josh's actions, saying he was pushed into it. Oh, fuck. And to that I say, the police were trying to find Susan. What happened to those children was the fault of Josh Powell and Josh Powell alone. It is believed the psychosexual evaluation was his breaking point. Because he was so terrified of that goddamn polygraph test. According to ABC News, Josh's family planned to bury Josh next to his sons, who were buried in a single plot in Woodbine Cemetery. But thanks to public donations to Crime Stoppers and donations from local police officers, the two plots on either side of the boys were purchased to keep Josh away. Wonderful. It's quite literally the only time in this that there was any seemingly happy news. Uh, I would like it stated for the record that Josh planned those deaths months in advance. Four months before the incident, Josh changed his life insurance policy so his brother Michael would be the main beneficiary. Michael would receive 93%, Alina would receive 4%, and John would receive 3%. At the same time, Josh, Josh... also changed Charlie and Braden's policies, making Michael the secondary beneficiary. These changes were all made one week after Steve Powell was arrested, around the time when Susan's parents were given temporary custody of the children. And just days before their scheduled visit, Josh donated boxes of his children's toys and books to a charity. There are no words to describe how horrific it is for someone to plan out a murder of their own children. Another member of the Powell family that we need to discuss is Michael Powell. Michael first caught the investigator's attention in 2011 when he contacted a satellite imaging company called Apollo Mapping, asking for a high-resolution image of Lindahl's auto salvage in Pendleton, Oregon. So what is Michael's history with that salvage yard? Well, shortly after Susan went missing, Michael and Alina drove from Washington to Utah to be with Josh and the kids. Two weeks later, on their way back to Washington, Michael's 1997 Ford Taurus broke down in Baker City, Oregon. But instead of paying money to fix the car, Michael paid $200 to have the car towed to Pendleton, 95 miles or 153 kilometers away. Now, I don't know what was wrong with the car or how much it would have cost to fix the car. The car was a 1997 model, so about 12 years old by this point. If it wasn't worth fixing, why didn't he just take it to the salvage yard in Baker City? And why did he say, quote, he wanted it to take it to a facility where it would be destroyed. What was it about the car that Michael didn't want found? Well, when investigators brought cadaver dogs to the scene, the dogs zeroed in on Michael's car and indicated the presence of human decomposition in the trunk. Unfortunately, the sample was too small to provide any valid DNA evidence. <laughs> 
But if your car breaks down, why decide to have it junked instead of fixing it? And then why have it towed to a salvage yard so far away? Lindell's auto salvage gave Michael $500 for the car, but he also paid $200 to have it towed there. So in the end, he only got $300 for his car? I would love to know how much a 1997 Taurus was worth in 2009. And I would Uh love to know what was wrong with the car and what it would have cost to fix. These are things I... That would uh, help me sleep at night. Yeah. Uh, Michael was also found to have lied under oath as he claimed he had no communication with Josh about Susan's disappearance. Michael also claimed he, quote, almost never used Facebook. But it turned out that Michael and Josh created a fake Facebook account together in June 2010. The account was for a woman named Molly Hunt, who immediately joined the group Friends and Family of Susan Powell right after the account was created. Molly also posted to the group saying, quote, I feel so heartwarmed by seeing the support I see from you, Susan's friends. I hope she is found very soon. Oh, my God. Molly also exchanged messages with Susan's best friend, who was an admin of the group. In August 2011, Molly's account was accessed from an IP address in Minneapolis, and 20 minutes later, the account was accessed from an IP address in Washington. The last login for Molly was January 22nd, 2012. Michael admitted that they had created the account to spy on another group they joined, which was called Where is Susan Powell? Oh, my God. And if they knew nothing about her disappearance, why would they need to spy on the group that was created to find Susan? Why not just join the group as yourself if you have nothing to hide? And because of this case and being just one tragedy after another, around 2.25 p.m. on February 12, 2013, Michael took his own life by jumping from a parking structure at Center Village in Minneapolis. Alina is convinced that Michael was pushed, but according to four eyewitnesses, they say he jumped. Michael had moved to Minnesota in 2010, where he was a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. He was a doctoral degree candidate in cognitive science. He was 30 years old at the time of his death. During Steve's trial, Steve pleaded not guilty and blamed all the videos and photos on his son, John, who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia in his youth. Prior to his death, Michael Powell publicly stated that police didn't have the evidence to support the voyeurism charges against Steve, and any evidence they did have was fabricated to, quote, inflict maximum damage to the Powell family's reputation and long-term financial situation. However, Steve literally narrates the entire videos. Yeah. And he wrote in great, great detail about his crimes in his 17 journals. So it is very clear that Steve was guilty. And if that doesn't make you believe it, Steve once wrote in a journal, quote, I enjoy taking video shots of pretty girls in shorts and skirts, 
beautiful women of every age. Oh, wonderful. Every single thing this man says grosses me out. Despite having numerous videos of Steve stalking and harassing Susan, none of it was admissible in court because Susan was not there to be able to say the videos were taken without her consent. I can't. Yeah. I can't. On July 13th, 2015, Steve Powell was found guilty on one count of child pornography and 14 counts of voyeurism. On August 21st, he was sentenced to five years. Stop! With credit for time served. Wonderful. He was released July 11th, 2017, to a halfway house where he was forced to register as a sex offender. A year later, on July 23rd, he suffered a heart attack and died at the age of 68. So Steve was infatuated with Susan, but did he have something to do with her disappearance? During his trial, just two weeks after Josh's death, Steve invoked his Fifth Amendment right to not answer any questions regarding Steve or Susan's disappearance. And while Steve is deeply disturbed and easily the grossest human being to ever exist, I don't think he killed Susan, but I'm convinced he knows something. On December 6th, the day that Susan went missing, Steve was in Washington with his kids, John, Michael, and Alina. Are his kids a good alibi? No, they're not. But I don't think Steve was anywhere near Utah on that specific day. That same day, Steve wrote in his journal, quote, I feel like Josh did a truly stupid thing and probably disposed of her body in a truly grotesque way. I think he probably went to some former industrial land just west of West Valley City and cremated her. He also added that Josh, quote, wanted to do it his way and avoid a messy and costly divorce. And I think Steve was on to something. I think Josh was so controlling over Susan that he didn't want her to go. He didn't want to let her go because then he wouldn't be able to control her anymore. Another unsettling thing about Josh, uh, while speaking to a court-appointed psychologist in late 2011, Josh commented that he should probably reconcile with Susan's family. The psychologist pointed out, Susan's family believe that you killed Susan, so the only way you can ever reconcile with them is if either Susan comes back unharmed, or if her body is found and there is evidence that proved you weren't involved. According to the psychologist's report, quote, Josh paused while considering the two scenarios and then somewhat rhetorically stated reconciliation with the Cox family would not be possible. Oh, wow. And while I would love to be optimistic and say that Susan is out there living her best life somewhere, I think we all know that isn't true. There is no way she would willingly leave her children behind. And speaking of her children, one final thing about them. Shortly after Susan's disappearance, Charlie was interviewed and said uh, Susan had gone camping with them the night of her disappearance, but that she had not returned home with them. And he said he didn't know why. In January 2011, Charlie was acting up in school and his teacher, 
who apparently hadn't read his file, uh, said if he continued to act up, she'd call his mom or dad. Charlie said, quote, my mom is dead. At some point after Susan's disappearance, a psychologist spoke with Charlie Powell, who was maybe five or six uh, at the time. The, there's a video of it. It's so heartbreaking. Uh, the psychologist said, quote, does anybody ask you about your mom? Charlie said, quote, we can't talk about Susan or camping. I always keep things as secrets. And I think the fact that he referred to his mother as Susan is the most heartbreaking part of that statement for me. And also the fact that he was told not to talk about camping. You only tell a kid not to talk about stuff when it's not something positive. If camping is just a fun thing you go and do with your dad, why wouldn't you be able to talk about it? Susan's parents once claimed that while at daycare, Braden drew a picture of three people in a car. When asked who the people were, he said it was him, Charlie, and Josh. Braden was then asked where his mother was. He allegedly said, quote, Mommy was in the trunk. And to that I say, kids notice way more than people realize. They are little sponges, and they are always paying attention even when you think they're not. Is it possible that Josh put Susan in the trunk and briefly hid her in the desert before going back later and maybe transporting her body somewhere else? Those kids saw something, whether they understood what was happening or not. In March 2015, Susan's parents got into a legal battle with Tarika and Alina Powell over control of Susan's estate. Tarika and Alina allegedly tried to have Susan declared dead so they could collect her $1.5 million life insurance. Prior to Michael's death, he was also uh, trying to take Susan's family to court over Susan's life insurance. This and family, man! This whole fucking family. A hundred percent. And to this I all say, what makes you think you deserve any of that money? When Josh was the main suspect in the case, his family shouldn't be allowed anything of Susan's. Nope. Thankfully, Susan's father, Chuck, was given full control over her estate. Now, I can't pinpoint the exact cause of it, but I can say this case completely broke me. Uh, I think it's also the timing. Uh, having something horrific happen to children, um, reading those horrific details at the same time of hearing about everything that had just happened in Texas, which is so heartbreaking. All of it was just too much for me, I think, at once. Uh, there's also the fact that there are a lot of similarities between Susan and I. She was born one month before me. Uh, we were both mothers to all boys. Uh, the fact that Susan's oldest son was born one week before my oldest son. Um, there's the fact that uh, this entire case was preventable. In so many ways. Uh, I'm angry that Josh and his family tried to blame other people for what happened and claimed that it was all just done to make them look bad. You made yourselves look bad, Powell family. 
Absolutely. I also hate that Josh was so confident that Susan would never be found. Uh, While the investigation into Susan's disappearance was closed in May 2013, the searches have continued. In February 2022, Susan's parents had a glimmer of hope after bones and pants were found at the bottom of a mine in Utah. After testing, the bones were found to not be human, and the DNA on the pants came back as male. According to Susan's father, Chuck, quote, there was a sock and a piece of a blouse material that was not submitted to testing. We have asked that to be tested. There is no word as to whether or not those items have been tested since. As of early June 2022, Susan Cox Powell has not been found. Susan was described as happy, outgoing, and optimistic. Susan was most known for her boundless energy and for being a devout member of the LDS Church. She was just 28 at the time of her disappearance. Now, when it comes down to my thoughts, quickly, um, I just can't help but wonder if it started with Josh making Susan pancakes on the night she disappeared. Did he drug her and quickly leave the house with the kids to give him an alibi, thinking that Susan would be dead when he got home. And then when he got home, he found her alive and he snapped because his plan didn't work. I absolutely think that Josh allegedly killed Susan while she was on the couch, hence the blood spatter on the floor and the fact that Josh cleaned the couch before going camping. I think he did one of two things with her body. I think Josh either drove out to the desert and put Susan's body in a mine, never to be found, or, and this is probably one of the more disturbing things I'm ever going to say, so I apologize in advance, I have great concerns that Josh may have given Steve Susan's body. Well, that plays into the exact theory that I have, and I think that I don't think you're far off the mark. Has Steve's property ever been searched? On December 8th, both Josh and Steve's cell phones were off the grid. They both received calls and messages December 7th and December 9th, but both had their phones off December 8th. Maybe Josh told his father what happened, and Steve said he'd take care of it. Then there's the fact that Josh's brother drove to Utah, and when his car broke down, he sold it to a salvage yard, instead of paying to get it fixed. And then he asked for a satellite image of that salvage yard. Uh, And then police took cadaver dogs there and found traces of human decomp in the trunk of that car. That's the thing about those dogs. They didn't take them to the car. They took those dogs to the salvage yard and let them go. And the dogs immediately went to that specific car. Was Michael transporting Susan's body to Washington? I know I said something similar in the Madeline McCann case, but I hope investigators have gone to Steve's property in Puyallup, excavated the basement or the yard or something. I truly believe the Powell men know where Susan is. I'm disgusted they were never willing to give Susan's family the closure that they were looking for. No matter what happened, I think any hope that we ever had of knowing the truth has died with Josh and Steve Powell. And while it is not professional of me to say, I honestly hope they both fucking rot. 
Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Oh, listen, it took everything in me not to uh, pipe in at parts, different parts where you said they had died. And, mm-hmm. oh, I, wa- I wanted to do a jig over here. I was like, I've mm-hmm. never, I don't know that I've ever. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. a short list. It's a short list that I want to celebrate a death. Very short. These two are up there. Yep. These two are up there. And I'm going to get into more of the reason why, especially, I mean, Josh, cut and dry, what he did to those children, rot in hell, you fucking, I don't even, I wouldn't even call that person an animal because that's an insult to animals. Sure. You fucking, I I, I don't even, and I don't even want to call him a demon because that's an insult to demons. Do you know what I mean? Okay. But you know what I mean? Honestly, like, Mm -hmm. it's like. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to give you that. You are lower than, oh, I can't. What he did, yep. I agree. But I also agree about Steve, and I'm going to give you my reasons why, because this entire time, and it's it's wild, because I've been building this theory since the beginning, and the yep. more and more you said, I was like, I think that, I think that, listen, do I know if I'm right or wrong? Of course I don't. But do I have a theory that as you went, I was like, this is what I thought in the first 10 minutes of hearing about Steve before the first break? The answer is yes. So let's take one more break, hit the can, grab another drink, grab another drink, and we're going to come back and I'm going to give you my theories on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Susan Cox Powell case Look, coming in as someone who didn't know a lot about this, I understand now why uh, so many of uh, our dear listeners on Patreon voted for this, because this is a batshit case. And listen, they all are. They're all horrific. There's no good true crime case. But sure, this one, yeah, this one sticks with you. I get it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go through my thoughts. I'm probably going to go off the rails. Go with me. Um, Come with me, dear listeners. Come with me on this journey. And you'll see. Red flag from the beginning, he had a hard time keeping jobs. Talking about Josh. That is, again, if I'm putting my psychologist hat on, and this isn't somebody, I want to preface this by saying, I 
I am alleging, but I am going to guess based on what we know now, this isn't somebody who's coming across a string of bad luck. That can absolutely happen to people, especially in the current state of the world that we're in all of the above. I am not suggesting anything other than if it felt like given his full profile, which I'm of course getting into, we'll continue to get into, that is a detail. Because it sounds to me from the details we know, he was quick to anger. He was impulsive. He had all these other things, all these other traits. And one of those things, if you, again, psychologist enthusiast, being unable to keep jobs, the reason usually is, and again, I would guess it was because he was starting fights. He was getting into arguments. He couldn't deal with authority. I bet you that's the reason. This is not somebody who, because of circumstance or or any of the other things we're not talking about that's not a psychological issue i'm talking about if we went and interviewed all his past employers and also given the fact that we know as as children they were given absolutely no rules they did not respect respect authority or women i promise you if we interviewed his past employers all of them would be like it was because he fought because he yelled at a woman because i'm telling you that and i love that i knew that i that again that stood out to me before I was given any other detail. I was like, uh-huh, that's going to be something. And boy, oh, boy, oh, did I never expect it to get as intense as it did. Um, I really think getting the details that we've gotten here, and I believe in innocent until proven guilty to the core of my being, of course. But I really do believe that there needs to be something that changes to protect victims in that time period, now I know we, we still don't have her body very tragically, but in that time period where there's something shady, even if there's not, any husband or wife, but in this case, I'm going to use the terms we're dealing with in this case. Sure. Any husband who doesn't let you search their home when their wife has gone missing, that's a red flag. Yeah. To me, the fact that they couldn't secure that search warrant and he had time to clean he had time to clean the house. He had time to clean the van. That's when you lose these key giant pieces of forensics evidence. We know this. We've done this long enough to know. It's in yeah. that first day. I really think, and this is a bigger conversation, obviously, but I really think there should be some law in place where, that should allow law enforcement to search the home be- because again, it's like, if it were me and my loved one, my my partner went missing, yeah. do I want them to ransack my home? Of course not. Do I want them to find my partner? Yes, I do. So what am I going to say? I'm going to say, please do what you got to do. Because I, I, I know yes. I have nothing to hide. So to me, again, I just feel like there needs to be some sort of rule or some sort of something to protect the forensics. Because again, as we know, there was obviously stuff that could have been lost during that time. And yeah. the fact that we know that this fuck, and yeah, I'm going to go there. It's, yeah. I don't, I don't feel bad about it. I don't think anybody listening is going to say, give him a better, yeah, he slaughtered his children. We're fine. Yeah. Um, this fuck was watching forensic files and all of those kinds of shows that goes to prove those first 12 hours was the time you need to be searching that house and searching that van. Stuff was lost. I promise, I promise, I promise. Legislation needs to change. I'm going to research this further because I I know it's probably different state to state. 
But I think there needs to be something that in the case of, and I don't know how you, I, I understand it's all gray area. How do you determine? But I just think that police should be able to get war- search, search warrants easier in, in those terms. As when soon someone as has gone missing. someone is missing. And again, the, the father's like, I took my kids camping at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Basically yeah. what I would like, and I know this is going to sound glib and it's truly not meant to be. I would like a, a spidey sense law where if it's like something's not right in my in my gut right now, mm-hmm. and I know that it's like that's so hard to police. Don't pardon the pun. But like everybody involved in this case had to know from the beginning, no father of a two-year-old and a four-year-old is taking them camping at one o'clock in the morning, especially mm-hmm. when he needs to work the next day. To me, that should be enough. Maybe a common sense rule would be a better way of putting it. A common sure. sense rule where if something just goes that's not right, I think that judges should be able to say, you know what? You're right. That's not right. Search that house. Search that van. Go. Well, time is of the essence, you know? Yes. Because again, I just feel like this is a case where we lost stuff. We lost stuff because of that, not being able to get that warrant sooner. Um, The fact that this fuck, this is something that's going to keep coming back. Thinks he's so smart. Oh, I'm going to go drive and then call her cell and leave a voicemail like I'm hiding in plain sight. You're not that smart. Shut the fuck up. Give me a break. Thank so you. sorry. I, no. I This one's got me going. But yep. you know what I mean? Like, it's like, really? Uh-huh. Do you think you're so smart? And these are the moments, and go with me on this journey, dear listeners, these are the moments where... I was like, is he a narcissist? That he does think that he's smarter than everybody. And he does think, oh, I'm going to do, I'm so smart. I'm going to call her cell. I'm going to leave a voicemail, even though her cell phone is on me right now. And I know that this will work. But I don't know that he is a narcissist. I think that there's a much darker explanation for all of this that I'm going to speculate about shortly. Um, Again, we speculated about this. You said you're pretty sure he never gave a sample. Um, we know the blood found near the couch was Susan's and an unknown male's. And I know I'm not suggesting that there should be a rule where uh, the police can compel any human's blood or or saliva samples. Sure. I do not believe in that. I believe that if a man is under arrest, which he eventually was, I do believe you should be, be able to swab his cheek. And I don't know whether that's a law or it isn't, but if it isn't, I think it should be. I think that if you've been arrested... Because there is enough evidence that you may have committed this crime. And I know people are going to come for me about this. But my whole point is, is I agree in innocent until proven guilty. So allow yourself to be proven innocent by giving your DNA. And if you refuse yes. to give your DNA, what does that say? I can't. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. I think 100% the second people are like, someone is missing. Automatically. The house is allowed to be searched. Yes. And anybody who lives in that house or is anywhere related in any way, dating, whatever, of the person who is missing, gives a DNA sample so that they yes. have stuff to go from immediately. Immediately. Because then, I want to remind you, a week after her disappearance, he lawyers up and refuses his third police interview. He showed up yep. four hours late to his second one. Again, I want this common sense law where a judge or, or a police detective can say something is not right here. Because ultimately, we know what the end game is here. We know the end game of this case, which is trigger warning, children dying, 
Yeah. And to me, there's two things I'm, I'm going to continue to talk about, which are one, the psychology of all of it, because that is, again, my hobby, my, my fascination in life, which is just why do, pe- why do brains of humans do what they do? But then the other side is, like you said, all of the places where I do believe that the, the law failed these children. Yeah. Because it failed Susan, certainly. I, again, I feel like the forensics got bungled because they couldn't get searched soon enough, but the, the law failed these children time, 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 and again, and look at the outcome. And to me, again, it's like, that's got to, that's, that can't be repeated. That can't be repeated. That's just disgusting. The fact that she had to have a secret safety deposit box with her handwritten will, my heart cries for this woman. Oh, I know. She, it's so hard. She's describing her own abuse. She's describing an abuse cycle. She talks about being in a cycle that she doesn't feel that she can get out of. And she feared for her life. She feared for her children. And that is real. And I think, too, I think it's very easy for people to look at cases like this and be like, why didn't she get out sooner? Like, those kinds of things. It's so much easier said than done. And certainly when you have the dynamic that they did with small children – she is trying to protect those children. That is what she was trying to do. She was yeah. taking steps. She did meet with a lawyer, I'm sure, in secret. She did film her assets. She did have the secret deposit box. She did have the secret will. She was confiding in people in work. She was tro- slowly trying to make change in ways that she felt was protecting herself and her children to the best of her ability. It is gutting that it did not. she was not able to progress to the point that she could save any of them. But again, it's, it's, it's just, it's, I mean, it's so, uh, again, it's, it's a truly mind fuck of a case. His ex-girlfriend, Catherine, talking about him being possessive, about him being abusive, controlling her money, controlling, not allowing her to see her family without him. These are classic signs of emotional abuse. And this is something that I think is, and I've, I talk about this a lot. It's not talked about enough. I think when we see abuse, domestic violence portrayed in film and television, it is typically physical abuse. Yes. And we don't see emotional abuse. Verbal abuse is, I think, also usually tied into the physical abuse as well. But 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 straight up just emotional abuse, which is what Catherine, his ex, described, it was every single box was checked. Yeah. And we don't hear that talked about enough. And we've talked about it on this show recently where it's like, I wish there was more about taught to kids in high school. I wish this shit was taught to all of us that it was like, these are the things to look out for. This is what is not normal. This is how slowly it will progress. You know what I mean? Because we see it over and over again on this show, doing this show. It's like, it's the same story, which is why it's so overwhelming and so gutting. Ah, um, oh, the fact, I mean, there's so many things. Again, he was so wildly in debt, but he was so cheap. Josh, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's like he want, he was, he, again, he, he, I'm going to, just going to keep going. Um, her, him making her pay for that ring. Again, I said it before that was, you're right. That was a moment. And I think that it, for him, it was like, I also think now having gotten to the end of the episode, yeah. Or the end of your research, I think that that was also a joke for his dad. 
I think that what we mm. learned about Josh was he really wanted to please his dad. We know that he wrote his dad a note at some point about a woman that said the only thing she's good for is, is her body. Isn't that right, dad? That will chill me for the rest of my days. And the yeah. fact that he was talking about her, like, tell the ring story. And it was about her spending the money so that they could get the discount to save the money. That was him, in my opinion, now, having got the whole picture, trying to impress his father. Look how I have this woman controlled, and look how I was thrifty. And I'm going to get into that more and more as we go. I think that the, a huge part of this case was Josh trying to impress his dad. Um, it feels like a never-ending cycle. That was one of the quotes Susan had said. And again, I'm like, yes, she was describing her own abuse cycle that I don't feel like she fully even knew that she was in. Um, the fact that they took to doing a press conference a year later, and that's when Steve said, oh, she was in love with me. She was yeah. promiscuous, all this stuff. That's where this starts to take a turn because that's, I think that Steve is a narcissist. I think like to the clinical, yeah. in the clinical way, I think Steve is somebody who is a demon. I think that Josh is too pathetic to be a demon. I think he was being controlled by a demon and sure. Steve was the one pulling the strings. That, that the, the, the Spoiler alert, this is where I'm going. But the fact that that was their move, that it was like, let's go public and slam her name a year later. One, brazen. This is not something that's going to help you stay hidden in the shadows at all. Sure. Two, it, the thing that will keep you staying hidden is pretending to be invested in trying to find her. This was the polar opposite. Yeah. And that, to me, again, these are the same kind of traits that we do see, again, psychologist hat, in serial killers, we do. We sure. see this that it's like eventually it gets to the point where they get more brazen. And that's usually when and how they get caught. But then you got into the Steve Powell stuff. And I know that you said he was worse than anyone we talked about. And I thought, worse than Gacy? Worse than, than Ramirez? How is that possible? But you're right. There is a special kind of fucking <sighs> evil to this guy that is unprecedented. Because those other guys were pure evil, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But this one, I truly believe, I am alleging, I have nothing to prove this, but I truly believe he was controlling that entire family and I think that the blood is ultimately on his hands for Susan's death yeah. and the death of those children. The deaths of those children, I should say. Like you said, a psychologist said, subconsciously, a child that is brought up the way that the children were brought up in the household where Steve was the patriarch, those children will align with the parent that they see as a threat yeah. subconsciously. And that, to me, honestly, says so much. The fact that these kids, that he, he got custody of the boys and then eventually also Elena, the fact that Josh killed gerbils, the fact mm. that Josh and his brother John shoved their mother this is all painting a real bleak picture for, again, what we know the future ending up being. What have you done to earn my respect, mother? Like, this oh. is wild. Again, just given this, this whole thing. The fact that Elena also went to, to live with Steve, I, I have compassion for her because we don't know what happened to her. And all I will say is I have no proof. I am speculating, but I think some dark shit happened to that girl in that house sure. with that man. I don't know what. 
But the fact that she is so devoted to him in every possible way, I think that is the way her brain splintered to try and make sense of whatever happened to her. That's my Mm. speculation. And again, heartbreaking. I don't defend her actions, but I I have compassion that I think it comes from a place of deep trauma. Um, And again, through the whole family, Michael creating this online smear campaign against the Coxes to try and keep those kids away from them. They're all controlled by Steve. They're all his puppets. Every one of them is willing to do absolutely anything they tell him to do. All they want to do is please dad. All they want to do. And that is why I honestly, there is a part of me, this is a speculation, I honestly, there is a part of me that thinks we know he was obsessed with Susan. It was his own words, his own videos, et cetera. Yeah. Why, why kill Susan then, Josh? Why then? We know that he was in contact with, with his dad, Josh, with Steve. Sure. Because it, you said they had been, they had ceased contact, moved away, ceased contact. But then there had been some more contact. It always caused a fight between Josh and Susan. Yeah. There is a part of me, this is again just my psychologist hat, hobbyist theory, that it was like Steve was like, if I can't have her, no one can. And because he was in control of all of those children, especially Josh, I feel like he was like, you know what you got to do? You can't have this. She's going to take you for everything you have. You're never going to see your kids. I think he he may have talked Josh into doing it. I agree with you. I don't know that Steve physically killed Susan. I I don't think that that makes sense. Do I think that Steve convinced Josh through whatever brainwashing manipulation to do it? I absolutely think that could be true. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, again, 4,500 pictures of Susan is chilling. Chilling. All of the stuff he collected of hers. Yeah. All of the videos. All of this. I mean – the fact that he confessed his feelings to her, the fact that they had to, Josh had to cut him off, but then kept slipping back, it just speaks to, again, what the nature of their, their relationship was as father and son. The fact that Steve was delusional, that he was like, she craves my attention, she likes oh. it, she's doing these things. Like, this is so deep and dark and sick. It is wild. And the fact also that Steve was like, oh, I, I love filming all women. And he had these these disgusting videos of the 8- and 10-year-old neighbors, which yep. Elena again defended, which makes me think once again, why does someone defend that of their father? Is it possible I'm alleging it could have happened to her or something similar? Just saying. Um, here is where it falls apart for me. Yeah. Recommended supervised visits with his children. The thing I wrote down in that moment, were his children interviewed? That's what I wrote down right then. And you got into it later, talking about about mom, or calling her Susan. Yeah. She went camping and she didn't come home. We don't talk about Susan. We don't talk about camping. The other child, Brayden, mom was in the trunk. Were they interviewed at the time that, that the supervised visits were recommended? That's my first question. Because you're right. Children absorb more than we know. And yeah. they were young. But if they weren't talked to, then they should have been. And then the next thing I wanted to say is I have heard so many stories of custody 
issues, nasty divorces, where truly neither party has really done anything that bad. It's just a opposite of amicable split. Sure. And that in those splits, one parent is is required to only see their children supervised at a state-approved facility. This man was suspected of murdering his disappeared wife. At the time, they knew, correct me if I'm wrong, at the time of the death of those children, they knew what was in Steve's home. They had found all of the pictures and all of the videos and all of that before those children passed. To me, and I understand the actions of Steve are not the actions of Josh, but to me, given everything, I do not understand, and this again is to me like, I don't know whether this is a legislation thing that needs to be looked into or what, I do not understand why those children were ever being taken to a private residence to see that man. Is he allowed to see his children by a constitutional or or whatever you want to call it right, sure. But you are doing it in a public slash government mandated facility. Again, I know people who've had to do that with their kids who've done nothing. It's just like that's the deal as we're going through the custody debate. And yes, it sucks. And yes, it's whatever. But you know what else I would say? I would hope that any parent who had been through that and how embarrassing and dehumanizing it feels, I would hope that any parent going through that would look at this case and go, if that's what we need to mandate to save those lives, that sounds pretty worth it to me. Because yes. I would. I don't even have kids, but I would. Oh, there is zero reason why he should have been allowed to have a visitation in his home. In his home. That's the problem for me. I get it. We need it, but Again, human rights, et cetera. He, he deserves to see his children at that point, given what they knew at that point. Great. It needs to be in a government-mandated facility, period, period, period. And I'm also, like, the fact that she, that that social worker just had to stand there and listen and the police wouldn't do anything. If, If they're going to do this and they're going to send kids in this manner, why was there not a police officer or security guard or, I don't know, why was she being sent there alone with these two children to this person's home? It, it, this is, this to me, again, I feel like there were so many places that I've already outlined where it's like, here was a place we could maybe have stepped in. This is the one yeah. where I'm like, I can't. Oh, the... The blood is on the hands of the judicial system in this case, too. Because 100%. that is... hundred percent. hundred percent a shared blame. Sorry. Oh, it is. And that that 911 call, I in no way blame the 911 operator. I understand they have a specific job to do. I can't even begin to imagine how they do the job that they do because I know I could never do it. Um, but listening to this woman say, like, I'm supposed to be in there. A child is screaming. I need to get in there. Like, what am I supposed to do? And then it being like, okay, well, where are you? And then what's the name? And then they're like, okay, but can you spell it? And she's like, for the love of God, just get here. And it was, I'm sorry, you know, like, you know, we will send someone, but it will be after they've dealt with any life-threatening cases. And she's like, this could be a life-threatening case. 
And this and is I, another case to me, this is another example to me of why cannot, why can't we, if this is the system, yeah. why can't social workers then be equipped, I'm not being glib, honest to God, with a code word? Why isn't there a nuclear button that they can call 911 that every 911 officer knows, operator knows, that if a social worker calls and says, I am a social worker, this is my number, code green, whatever it is, that they sure. go, we're sending somebody. Because that social worker knew. She yeah. did. Yeah. She knew. And she was doing everything that she could, it sounds like, to try and get any sort of help. To me, again, the common sense rule. Why can't there be a common sense rule where again it's like there is a there is a there's a nuclear button for lack of a better term where it's like I know that this is these children's lives are in danger. I know it, I know it, I know it. And as a social worker who is registered to the state, this isn't it this isn't just a citizen going like, I think maybe something's going on over there. Like why can't we empower if we're going to empower them as social workers to have the best interests of those children in their care? then why yeah. can't we empower them further to say, this is what's up, code word, whatever, so that then perhaps there's a chance. Yes. Or again, keep them at a facility. But even if they're at a facility, I still think there should be a system where a social worker can call 911 and give a, give a code, a code word, a series of whatever numbers, and that they're that they're listened to, that they're believed, that it's not just like, well, okay, that it's like, no, no, this is not... This is not just a, like, I think a welfare check. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ugh, it's just so horrific. Again, what ended up happening and that she basically had to stand there while it happened. It's awful. Steve writing in his journal, I feel like Josh did a truly stupid thing in regards to how he, he disposed of Susan's body. That, to me, again, I just feel like I could see it have been have, – have been, that Steve had manipulated him to kill Susan because for Steve, it's like, if I can't have her, I want no one to. So of he course. said whatever he needed to in order to convince him. And then it was like, that's how you disposed of her? He probably did it in this dumb way. I should have done it. I would have given it the reference it deserved or whatever. Of course. Like, it just all, again, it's, which is so creepy, terrifying, all of the above. Um, Again, and then I just wrote down at the end, like, Steve, I just feel like, has to be involved. I think he is obviously peripherally involved with how he raised those children and what that household was. Of course. I mean, it's no, I'm not, this isn't rocket science. This isn't rocket rocket brain science to say that the way he raised those children was had impacted Josh and impacted the outcome. Yeah. But I just honestly believe, given what we know about the press the press conference they did a year afterwards, about the fact that they both of their phones were turned off on that one specific day, the day after she went missing, about what they found in terms of his level of obsession with her. And the thing that keeps coming back to me is that note that Josh had written him saying, only good for her body, right, Dad? But then oh. we also know that Josh was like repulsed by sex and physical physical. Affection. Affection, yeah. It just makes me feel like he was operating through his years of abuse with his dad, trying to appease him, trying to please him, trying to whatever him. And the last thing I wrote down was, 
Steve's the demon. Josh is too pathetic to be a demon. He's just feeding the demon. And you can argue that Josh was, of course, a a victim of his own upbringing. Of course. But we can also say that there are people, obviously it goes without saying, but I think it's important to remember, there are people who grow up in horrific circumstances who don't grow up to do the things that we know that Josh did. So... Yeah, it does not mean that it is a uh, absolute life sentence that you are going to become a killer because you're raised the way you are. Um, I mean, this one got the blood pumping. I mean, this is a wild, wild ride. Yeah. Again, it was the timing of it all. I mean, it's still it's going to be horrific no matter when we do it. Um, But it was the timing for me that just kind of added to further... I was already feeling uh, unsure for the sake of children in yes. the, in the world, but in that moment, it was just oh, like I I went into this knowing that it was uh, I knew Susan went missing, and I knew it was something about the husband was like super suspicious, and that's kind of all I knew, and so. It, uh, it, it, it's one that's going to, uh, break you. And I know that the next time we are asked, what's a case that stuck with you? I have my answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I know that this one's going to be tough for a lot of people. I know a lot of people prefer the ones that don't mention children at all. Um, I don't want to, I don't like ones that mention children, but there are people, those people still deserve to be talked about in some way so that people know what, you know, sort of monster exists in the world. Yeah. And do I want to talk about the deaths of those children? I do not, but their names should be mentioned in the hope that their story can do something to prevent it happening to another family. Because it's just, it's just bullshit. The, this is the first time reading notes that I almost completely broke. Um, just the, so many people failed those children. Again, so many people failed Susan. It's just, it's, uh, it's just, again, I and I can still hear Steve's voice in my head from watching videos of him, and it's it's unsettling at best. So I get why people were interested in this, because it takes turns that you never expect it to. But, uh, wow, I would love to do a nice heist, <laughs> a nice light heist sometime soon, you know? Well, listen, Chrissy Oxborough, you, uh, as always, never cease to impress. Amazing mm. job, amazing work. Um, and and listen, I do think it's important to tell these stories. I think it is important to start these these conversations. I am legitimately going to look into, like, what the legalities are in terms of, you know, supervised visits and all of those things state by state because I think that these are things that, that do need to get brought up. And, you know, it, yes, it, it, there is obviously so much – in the news currently Mm. um, in terms of legislation and in terms of, of children dying uh, we're we're alluding to, of course the school shooting that happened in Texas recently. Um, 
And I think I think that regardless of wherever you land on the political map, I think that if we get complacent to children dying, then we're just losing the we've just lost humanity. I think when we get complacent to anyone dying, that should be true. But certainly when it's it's children, um, I just think it's important to tell those stories. And so I think if I, I mean, it's it's tragic for Susan. I'm not in any way diminishing her story, but I think if nothing else, it is it is imperative that we tell the stories like this one where perhaps there are room, there is room for us to change, um, change the things that truly failed those children because they were failed again and again. There was so many places in my opinion where we can do better and where the government and, and lawmakers can do better. And I think that's important to keep those stories alive. Um, because otherwise what are we doing? Oh, I completely agree. I, I mean, that, I mean, none of the mass shootings are good. The ones that happen at schools, I just, I was asked on a live recently, uh, would I ever move to America? And I don't think I ever got my answer out, but I've always would I would have always loved to have been in and around Disneyland to be close enough to be able to do a trip whenever I want. But in the state of things the way they are, I would absolutely never have my children attend school in that country. Never. I I am just heartbroken for any family that just has to send their child every day. I can't imagine what you go through. It's all of it's horrific. And I know that if I ever said anything, you know, gun control based in this platform, that we will get people who are like, uh, and then they got political on me and they get annoyed and they leave. And if that happens, then so be it. Because as far as I'm concerned, to your point of if we're okay with children dying, then humanity is done. I mean, I saw um, a tweet. I wish I could remember it word for word. Um, it came up during the uh, time of that recent shooting, but it said that the parents, oh no. Oh, well, Lauren might get what she might <laughs> Lauren might get her first Christy cry uh, on film. On film. How old am I? Um, when uh, Sandy Hook went down, which is, as a mother, uh, not something I like to discuss because that case particularly breaks my heart. Um, they all do. But, oh, it's children. Um, all of the parents were uh, told to stay at a firehouse nearby. And one by one, officers would come in and tell certain parents that they could leave. And at a certain point, there were only so many parents left. And that's when officers went in and said, the reason you're all here is because your children are dead. And I cannot imagine what those parents went through. Um... I won't even say forgive me for saying fuck anybody who says that that didn't really happen. <laughs> fuck, yes. fuck anybody who thinks, oh, well, 
it is what it is. I would rather use an assault rifle when I, you know, shoot in a forest or whatever you do with assault rifles. I'm just over it. And I don't know how, like, I can't do anything from where I am. Um, But my God, please, please just vote and do what you need to do to get the right people in place to make stuff like this stop happening. And people will say, don't be political, but these are the lives of children. We're not being political. We're being fucking human. Yeah, if you think that children dying is is a political issue, if you think that that's a political issue, that's you. Yeah. Because I truly, we don't, what were the families of all of those children? I bet you it was mixed. I've lived in America long enough to tell you I'm friends with as many Democrats as I am Republicans, or I have been over the years. It is mixed. And I'm going to tell you something else. I know a lot of Democrats that are gun owners. That is a fact. It's a different world with guns in America. And I get that. I get that. I get that. It is what it is. Do I agree with it? That's irrelevant. The point is, it is, that is what it is. But if, If you don't look at the statistics, and something that we like to do on this show is stick to facts. And if you don't look at the statistics and see that when the assault rifle weapon ban ended, there was a massive spike in mass shootings, specifically in schools. If you can't look at that and say, I don't need an assault rifle bad enough. I don't know what to say to you because to me that's not political. No. I don't know I don't know how to reason with you honestly because I'm not saying we're taking your guns. My own personal belief about guns is aside. Can we just give up the assault rifles? Because I look <gasps> at this I I as like as a as an armchair detective I look at the I look at the data and what I see is There was a line that was pretty straight across. And when that assault weapon ban went out, when it no longer was in effect, there is a spike that makes your stomach turn. Keep your other guns if you want them so badly. Can we just stop with the assault rifles? Please. I get it. It's a bigger issue. It's it's intrinsically entrenched in Americana or whatever the fuck. Blah, blah, blah. Can we just get rid of the assault rifles? Let's just take that step. And I know then people yeah. will say, well, then you're coming for whatever. We're not, though. Because all no. that w- it was before was about the assault rifles. When you're yeah. getting reports that they can't identify the children because their faces are fucking blown off, and you want to mm. say that it's more important to you to be able to keep that assault rifle, shame on you. And you can unfollow mm. us, and you can write all the fucking hate you want all over the internet. I don't give a shit. We have to care about the lives of children. And children yes. should not have to fear going to school. Parents should not have to fa- fear sending their children to school. And again, I'm going by the data, the raw facts. This has nothing to do with my opinion. Because my opinion is, I don't like guns at all. That's my sure. opinion. I'm putting my opinion out the window. I'm saying this is something that is tangible, that is doable, that worked in America within yeah. the past 20 years. Can we just do that? Please, please, please. And you can keep the rest of your guns. 
please. Sure. There is. We don't have to agree. This is my whole nope. point. Like that is the that is the beautiful point about democracy. We don't have to agree. We can have different standpoints, and I think that that is a beautiful thing. But I think we should be able to agree on the assault rifles. And if you don't, I don't know. I I can't have the conversation because to me, again, the lives of those children, not being able to have that empathy, it being more important to you to have that gun, those guns. That is something I will never be able to understand when there is raw, hard data proving that if we just got rid of those, you would save hundreds and hundreds of children's lives. Yeah. It's just my question, and I guess it's kind of rhetorical. Yeah. Uh, because I'm sure people will answer and okay. But for those who have or want assault rifles, who don't plan on using them for any sort of mass shooting, sure. what, what do you do with it? Does it just make you feel great to go and play Call of Duty in real life? Is that it? Because there's zero reason to own one of those weapons personally. A hundred percent. Zero weapons. To your point, you want to you wanna keep like your rifle or your handgun or whatever. Great. Not for me, but great for you. It's the assault rifles. There's just assault weapons of any kind. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Canada and the, with, oh God, maybe two years ago, I can't remember, within the last few years, my kids did their first lockdown drill and I was sick to my stomach. So my heart goes out to any parent that sends their kids to school thinking, you just don't know. Like I, I was in high school when Columbine happened and that was the most shocking thing to me in the world. And the amount of times that kind of thing has happened since, I'll never understand it. Yeah, We're not coming for your guns. The government is not coming for your guns. Assault weapons. That's all we're talking about. Assault yeah. weapons that police are too afraid to go up against, but parents are willing to get tasered or handcuffed to run in and save their own children and also again oh we're, i'm gonna make us lose followers and i apologize for it's that fine. I, I apologize to you specifically for that i don't to care. the people who want to leave my point is the fact that some of those cops went into that building and took their own children out i know and then tried to arrest parents for trying to do the same thing i I can't. Every single thing that comes out about that, it just, I can't. They were little kids. And the photos of the children running out of that school and the absolute terror on their faces, that is with them for life. Like, I, I can't. I can't with it. We don't want all of your guns. The government is not against you. Just give up fucking 
assault weapons on the chance that it could save children's lives. A hundred percent. And, you know, I would also just offer that the uh, when that amendment was made to the Constitution, assault rifles didn't exist. And I uh, can't speak to uh, the founding fathers, but this was not. It, 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 we're just so far away. It's so clouded to me. All of this is so clouded. And by the way, in Canada, there's a lot of guns. A lot of guns. A lot of people have guns. They're all registered, and you have to take a course, a mandatory course, in order to be able to own a gun. And um, you can't get your guns or your bullets at, like, a Walmart or a Target-type store. Um, they're only in specific places, and it's all uh, kind of tracked. And I believe in the time that America had 300 school shootings, we had four, five, six? I can't remember. But that sounds right. The numbers, so again, don't quote me, the numbers are very low is the point. Does it completely solve the problem is my point. No. Does it significantly decrease? Yeah. And again, also if you're using a, a fucking assault rifle to go hunting, pathetic. You've missed the point of being a marksman. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, sure. they're, they're just designed to kill. They're not designed for any skill. Like, and I don't even want to talk about skill with shooting because it doesn't align with my own personal values. But when I'm trying to see it from the other side, those are the places that you go to. You know what I mean? So it's like, sure. I, I agree with you. It's like, what do you get out of this? Feeling powerful? I don't, I, that's the only thing I can think. And listen, we didn't plan to go on like a long gun rant here, but but nope. but it's it's not about... It honestly isn't about the guns. It's about the it's about children and it's about the fact that there is and I will never stop saying it till I'm blue in the face. This doesn't happen in other countries. And Correct. there was an assault rifle ban that made a significant to almost complete difference. Can't we just do that? I will I will compromise. And that's the thing. As someone who doesn't agree with guns, I'm saying, I'll compromise with you. I would be willing to say, great, fine, keep the rest of your guns, fine, do your thing. Yeah. Just, let's just not have these, please, because what we've seen is that they kill kids consistently yeah. and in great numbers and very, <laughs> very well. They're really good at killing kids really, really easily. Can we just yeah. get rid of those? Can we compromise, please? And that's the problem that I have, is that there's no give on the other side. Right. Because in their head, they hear guns, and they're like, well, they mean them all. Right. Uh, but to that side, I saw um, a video of a comedian the other day. I wish I remembered his name for the sake of mentioning it. Um, but his whole thing was like, People who are so worried about their guns are like, well, it's it's my amendment right. I have the right to bear arms. And he was like, great. Can you tell me any other amendments? Because if you're going to be like, you can't just be like, oh, my God, my amendment right. Though three that we care about. Like, no. Do you care about any of the others? And the answer is you don't. Because that you feel that amendment rights is your way of proving that you think that is your like, no pun intended, that's your smoking gun evidence of why 
guns should exist. But to your point, there were no assault weapons when that was a thing. Not even close. I just, I can't. And it's exhausting. And I don't know how people can just sit by and be like, well, it doesn't happen that often. Like the fucking, what was it, the governor? Who said it could have been worse? I just fucking can't. I can't. No, no, no. And again, you know, bottom line being, I saw a video, there's one that's going around on the internet right now, and it was about a very pro-gun gentleman who's been an activist. He's been a pro-gun activist. And after what happened most recently, he he turned in his assault rifle. Hey. He's, keep, he's keeping the rest of his guns. He's still pro-gun, but his whole point is exactly what we're saying, which is, you know what? This just isn't worth it anymore. And I've looked at the data and I've I've looked at it and said, you know what? Maybe this is the one thing that we should just stop doing so that children can stop dying at school. And I yeah. that's the point. So again, you can make it a political issue if you want to. To me, it's not because that guy's a diehard Republican. I am personally not. But guess what? He and I align exactly the sa- in the exact same way. So to me, that suggests that this isn't a political issue. No. If two people from complete opposite ends of the spectrum can come together on something, which again, I do believe is the beauty of democracy. To me, it's like, then it's not a political issue. No. Because we're both, we're both agreeing that it's bigger than that. My hope, dear listeners, if you're still listening at this point, (laughs) is that you can, you can hear what we're saying, which is we are, um, uh, deeply, we've been deeply affected by all of the school shootings that have happened, obviously, anywhere in the world. But this most recent one, it just starts to feel, I will speak as someone who is a, you know, lives in the United States. It just starts to feel um, numbing. And I just don't feel like we can allow it to feel that way. No. Bulletproof backpacks exist. It's that, not the way that's not changing how to it to one this. one door and only one door yes. in the school is not the way that's a fire hazard. There's oh. a there's a million different like no. No. Again, we have data. Keep the rest of the guns. Please, please, please. I beg you. I beg you. And if listen, if we lose 100 listeners from having this rant, but one gun person is like, you know what? They're right. I'm going to keep the rest of my guns, but I'm going to get rid of my assault rifle. It will be so worth it to me. I could sob about it right now. Like that is the thing. We're not coming for the guns. We're saying, can we just stop it with the ones that slaughter kids? Please, 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 please. Can we just agree there? Can we like meet in the middle there? That's it. Because I think sometimes, too, it's about showing the other side, too, the people that don't have the same thoughts as you, that it's like, we don't think you're bad people. It's not that it's like, there's no attack. It's not that I think that it's like, you're a piece of shit. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we grew up differently. We have different, we just have different, again, we just have, we grew up differently. There's no other way of putting it. You know what I mean? But can we just, can we just come together on that? That's just the one thing. And it, it's... The saddest thing in the world that that's where we're at in life is 
begging people to just not kill kids. Like, that is not exactly the world that I expected to grow up in. And it's not what I want my kids in. I mean... And it would, 100%. And it would just be so, I think the bigger point too is just like, it would be just so powerful if people like that gentleman I'm referring to who are pro-gun, who are going to continue to be pro-gun. And like I've said, that's your prerogative, which I respect. You are, that is your right. But if you can just take a look at the data, look at how the numbers spike, See that it's like this is the one thing that if if you all got behind it and set an example and said, no, this is this is cheapening our position about guns. This is not strengthening our position about guns. That to me would just be a really powerful, beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm... I'm just, I'm just at a loss. I know. At this point. It's tough. It's yeah. tough. It's really tough. But listen, um, great work. Great rant. <laughs> we haven't had, we haven't had an episode this long or this ranty in some time. It's so true. there you go. It's true. There you go. It's true. But you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. You know, we, I think in general, we do keep things non-political on this show. I think that it, it is just kind of the nature of, of what it is. But but to our point, again, this just doesn't even feel political. This is about this is about children's deaths, and it's just so heavy. It's just so heavy. It's hard to not yeah. talk about it when we do a weekly show. And we had an episode that involved a very, very brutal murder of children. It's just It just feels impossible not to address it. So we thank you, dear listeners, for coming with us on this journey, for listening, for hearing us out. And you know what? Honestly, too, if you've gotten to the end of this, you've listened, you've heard us out, and you still disagree, um, but you're willing to be respectful and say, we have different viewpoints, and 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 that's what it is, I'll also tip my hat to you. Um, I don't – again, we agree to disagree. It's not ideal, but uh, I think that we have to start somewhere – meeting in the middle in this, especially in, in, in America, um, which is an amazing, wonderful, beautiful place. But I think again, trying to find some common ground would be very powerful down here. Um, Christy Oxborough, amazing work. Thank you so very much for your work, for your passion, uh, for all of the above. Again, I didn't know a lot about this and I am enraged. I'm enraged, but also yeah. inspired. I feel again like I got to look into some of these these laws um, because I feel like there's things that may need to be talked about in greater detail. And thank you, dear listeners, for coming with us on this ride. If you haven't already, please give us a follow on our socials on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives, on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash True Crime and Cocktails, and the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is. TrueCrewMerch.com. And remember, you can get our limited edition Pride Month t-shirts on TrueCrewMerch.com until the end of June. So pick one up while you can. 50% of those profits do go to the Trevor Project. Uh, Christy, do you want to tell us, uh, tell the listeners about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Lindsay Buziak. Another case I don't know a lot about, and I am jazzed to learn it from my best gal. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Uh, I want to say uh, 
for all of those celebrating Pride Month. We love you, and you're not alone. Yes, and if you're a younger person and it feels unbearable, feels like things could not possibly get worse, I truly promise you it gets better. Good night, everybody. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.